so everyday spy is a it's my my um, vision of how we bring practical tangible spy skills out of espionage and apply them in everyday life to give people an unfair advantage an unfair advantage in business, an unfair advantage in relationships, in their career, in their personal security and securing their family. Because as much as we were just talking about how everybody wants a fair opportunity, there's only one thing people want more than a fair opportunity. Mm. They want an unfair opportunity. Mm, that's right. Right? And that's when you understand that concept, when you're the kind of person that's nodding as we are having this conversation, yeah. you're the right kind of customer for everyday spy. Right. Because it's all about giving people an unfair advantage by giving them a skill or teaching them some bit of knowledge that's reserved for secret intelligence officers. Right. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C dot com. Andrew Bustamante, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I'm, I appreciate it, man. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, you know, I've seen your work for a long time. Uh, I think your topic is super interesting. And the, the, the question of what is money, I mean, that that's a question that goes all the way back to the farm for me when I was still going through like initial training at CIA. So I think it's a fantastic title and a great topic. Yeah, thank you so much. I feel very fortunate to have stumbled upon it right when world history seems to be dealing with that question a lot right now, uh, not only with Bitcoin, but also with CBDCs, et cetera. Um, and I'm especially excited to have you today because you are the first guest ever in our new studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. This is an awesome studio too, man. I felt like... Uh, 
I feel pretty special sitting down. And then when you told me I was the first guest here too, I was like, oh, let's get, yes. let's get comfortable. Yes. <laughs> and you got the red carpet treatment. We tried to do the steak lunch beforehand and just, yeah, we wanted to create an experience for guests rather than just sticking people in front of a mic. So yeah, it's working, brother. Awesome. <laughs> Love to hear that. Uh, just by way of quick introduction for my audience, you are a former covert CIA intelligence officer. Um, and you've got a very interesting background, very interesting history. Um, maybe we could start with a little bit of that, just how you got to now. Um, and then I would also like to hear a little bit about your your business, The Everyday Spy, which you've got on your shirt there. Yeah, absolutely, man. And and my my background is not that different, I think, from your average American, really. I grew up in a kind of a rural town in Pennsylvania. Uh wanted an option, right? And when you when you grow up in rural America, there's not always a lot of options. Mm -hmm. And uh, the time came that I had to start thinking about college and what was the future going to look like. And I, my parents didn't have a college savings for me. And mm. uh, and we were basically a, a military veteran family. So it was always very clear to me that I was either going to go into the military or I was going to get a local job mm. after high school. Right. The idea of student debt and loans and college, that just didn't really, that wasn't built into the psyche of my family, mm -hmm. not in 1998 when I was graduating. Right. Um, but I was fortunate enough that in my, in my high school, uh, I learned about the military academies, West Point, Air Force Academy, Annapolis. Uh, and I kind of took a liking to that idea of going to a military university. It's still the military, but it's also university and being the first university graduate in my family was a very appealing idea to me. Mm. So that's actually where, where I went. And, uh, I was fortunate to get, uh, to get nominated by a Senator, which is one of the hardest requirements to get into a military Academy. I hated every day of mm. being a military college student. And to anybody out there who's been to a, a military Academy, they understand exactly what I'm talking mm. about. Uh, but it was great. It, it created exactly the opportunity I needed right now forever. I have that on my resume. I have that network. I have that kind of, uh, that connection mm -hmm. to the Air Force Academy. And that was a big part of what ultimately led to CIA recruiting me out of the Air Force because I had this academy education. I had foreign languages. I was, I learned Chinese. I majored in foreign area studies when I was at the academy. And then anytime they have an opportunity to recruit somebody who they've basically groomed from the age of 17, mm -hmm. right? Cause my first application package really went into them when I was 16 and a half years old, the air force, the military has known me since I was a kid. Hmm. So all of that kind of came together in 2007 when I was invited by CIA to come up to Langley for interviews. Very cool. How did you said you got a, uh, senatorial recommendation? What, how, how did that happen? And what was that about? Well, the, I mean, the, the way that it works to get into a military academy is you have to have, you have to meet certain requirements academically, physically, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this wild card where you also have to be nominated by either a Senator, a Congressperson or the vice president of the United States. Mm. So, and that makes it very difficult because each Senator and each, each Congressperson has a limited number of people they can nominate each year. Mm. And then depending on how many students they have nominated who are still in the academy, that number goes down. So I really just got lucky, dude, because I was, I was working at a, uh, at a golf, like Caddyshack kind of restaurant. Yeah. And we had two senators who were in our same hometown who golfed at that, mm. uh, who golfed at that golf course and ate at that restaurant. And I was a bus boy 
and like a short order cook at the restaurant and the owner just liked me. So the owner, once the owner found out, I was thinking about going to a military academy. Mm -hmm. Every time the senators came in, every time the Congress people came in, he always pulled me out from the back and was like, this is Andy and Andy's going to try to get into an academy and he's a great guy, but he's going to need your help because he needs a nomination. And I, I used to be so embarrassed about it until it worked, right? Until all of a sudden the time came that I had to submit my package and I submitted my package and and I got an invite to come to the the seat at the Capitol in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and actually sit and interview with a senator. And it was just mind boggling that I got that opportunity when other people didn't. Wow. That's the reason I love the idea of your show and and the mission that you're on to talk about what is money is because the one lesson that CIA taught me above all other lessons is that if you have the ability to create opportunity, mm -hmm. you never have to be the one waiting for it. Hmm. And what money really is, is opportunity. Hmm. That's really what money gives you, hmm. right? And that's why everybody's on a hunt for more money. Mm -hmm. Whether they're poverty stricken or whether they're wealthy, everybody wants more money. Even the asshole out there that says, oh, can I cuss on your show? Of course. Did. Yes. <laughs> Even the All about freedom there, here. Yeah. <laughs> who says money doesn't matter. Money's not important, yeah. right? Probably has a full-time job, right? And push that guy a little bit further or push that gal a little bit further and guess what they're going to say. Eventually, they're going to say, well, if I wanted to do that, I need more money. Yeah. Right? So yeah. there there becomes this friction point because we all really do see money as opportunity. We just don't want to call it that. Yeah. No, that's a great framing, actually. We often describe money as like a tool of optionality, right? It can be used as an option to acquire any good or service in the marketplace, but that's all, that's very synonymous with opportunity, right? It's money is the freedom to mobilize human energy towards some aim you might have, right? Whether that's a business or a, a charity, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're exercising your option for more comfort when you buy new shoes. Yes. You're exercising your option for more confidence when you buy a nice suit. Right. Right. You're exercising your option to to control your social status when you buy a nice car. That's right. Right? I mean, that's what we're doing is we are buying ourselves an option. Yeah. I know I am certainly with my business, I am absolutely on a mission to grow and build wealth. Yes. And I don't hide that. I'm not embarrassed by that. I don't think that's shameful. Yeah. Because any wealth I build gives me options, but it also gives my wife options. Mm -hmm. It gives my kids options. Uh, it gives the legacy I leave behind options because guess what i didn't have when i was a rural 16 year old student in pennsylvania i had no fucking options yeah. i don't want to leave that behind that's not the legacy i want to leave right we have the chance to change that yes forever yeah right everybody listening right now has a chance to change the legacy that was handed down to them forever yes no it was very, very inspiring and i think that's a that's an original answer to the question, what is money actually is <laughs> something like liquid opportunity. Um, it does afford you that. And uh, so what does that say about a lot of people in the world saying that we need equality of opportunity at least? Now, equality of outcome, anyone that's clamoring for that, I think you're fundamentally wrong. Like, you know, the only place humans are equal is in the grave, as I often say, we're, we're all unequal and that's what's magical about humans that we get to capitalize on our relative skill sets and that's what the division of labor is and all these things in the marketplace. But what, if money is opportunity, what does that say about equality of opportunity? Because obviously money is not distributed equally. So how, how do those two 
concepts really. Money as opportunity to equality of opportunity. So I am, and I'm going to say right out that I am not always popular. My answers are not always the popular answer. You're in the perfect place. <laughs> we're, we're, so I, we're often unpopular as well. <laughs> um, I think first we need to abandon this idea of equality. Mm. Equality is a fictional concept, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not what people think it is. It's not what some people promise it to be. It certainly isn't used as a term. It isn't used in a consistent way. Sometimes people talk about equality when they mean equity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they talk about equality when they mean fairness. Sometimes they talk about equality when they actually mean equality. Mm-hmm. So it's always different. But if you kind of disband the idea, um, America and the Western world was not founded on the concept of equality. Let's be very honest. Mm-hmm. America happened because a bunch of pilgrims, or a bunch of, uh, of poor folks in the UK yeah. had no fucking opportunity in the UK oh, for property, for land, yeah. for anything. Yeah. So they signed a contract to basically take a, a dangerous trip across the ocean to create settlements in the new world mm-hmm. that would create resources and produce and products that would then go back to the old world. Yeah. And in exchange for them taking the risk, they were granted first rights to land and, mm-hmm. and salaries and everything else, right? It wasn't like they were trying to flee religious persecution. That's a story that we're told mm-hmm. that is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. There was an element of religion that was going along with it, but at the at the core, they were entrepreneurs. Sure. Right? They were indentured servants with an opportunistic spirit. Mm-hmm. That's what it would take to spend three months crossing the ocean mm-hmm. and, you know, the 1800s that's nuts right in the 1700s yeah even before that yeah so uh so that's where we were founded we were our government and our constitution was drafted by white landowning men yeah that's what it was and it's not because they were white and it's not because they were men the reason it was crafted was because they were land owning right right what is a land owner somebody who's invested Mm-hmm. Right, somebody who sees the land as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. When you're talking to somebody in society who is not invested, they don't own property, they don't run a business, they don't invest their money in the market. Mm-hmm. They're they're not connected. They're not invested. They can never be mm-hmm. equal to somebody who is invested. Right. They have different incentives. They have different intentions. They they are not no in, skin in the game. Right. They have no skin in the game. Yeah. Right. Would you ever trust somebody to play on your favorite football team if they didn't wear the jersey and they weren't part of the team? Like a freelancer on the team. Yeah. Like you don't know that person's going to throw the game or what they're going right. to do. Right. So we have to let go of this idea of equality and understand that the what what we're really looking for is fairness. Yes. We're looking for someone to treat us fairly, yeah. and we're looking for a fair opportunity to demonstrate our values, our capabilities, and our interests in whatever we're interested in, yeah. whether that's art or wealth development or you know geopolitics. Yeah. What we hate is when we don't get the opportunity because we call that unfair. Yes. No, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful way to decompose it because it is, I often say it's more about a quality of the rules, but that is effectively fairness, right? We want a level playing field. We want to all be equal in the eyes of the law. For instance, we all want private property rights. Like as long as the playing field is level, then you can let the players demonstrate their inequality, right? Like someone's really good at building a business. Someone's really good at agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then through trade, we all get to enjoy the best fruits of one another's labor. So exactly. like that's the magic of, of the marketplace. But the problem is the distortion of rules. That's and all the suppression, the suppression yeah. of natural skill and talent. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, most of the folks who, who watch you, who see you, who learn from you will probably never get the chance to meet you. And one of the things that I didn't realize is how massively large you are. <laughs> so when I walked in, right, I've seen hours of your footage, yeah. right? I've seen pictures of you everywhere. You don't smile very often. <laughs> so it's kind of cool to see you smile too. But, uh, but damn, dude, you are huge, right? You've got, your arms are probably as big around as my thighs <laughs> and you're tall, like you're a big guy. I'm laughing because I got a lot of this in Miami recently. I just got back and people were like, damn, you're way bigger than I thought you were. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but it, it, to, to force you, to suppress you physically so that I have the opportunity to compete against your natural physical abilities doesn't make us better. Right, 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 right. It doesn't, it, all it does is pull back the benefits we could get from you. Yes. And then it forces me to try to maintain your natural skill sets. What would be much better is to pair us as a team. Yeah. Let you do what you're naturally good at. Let me do what I'm naturally right. good at. We're reducing the number of net vulnerabilities between the two of yes, us. Yes, yes. But unfortunately, we live in a time, and especially in a government right now, where the divide that, we are, that we're seeing, and I would argue that we're seeing much more of a socioeconomic divide yeah. than a political divide mm -hmm. or a racial divide. But in that socioeconomic divide, you basically have landowners yeah. and non-landowners. Yeah. So what do landowners want? They want to double down. They want to invest. They want to work hard. They're invested in making the most out of the land. And what do non-landowners want? They want equality. They yeah. want a fairness. Yeah. They want someone to clip the wings mm -hmm. on the big athlete so that they have a chance to mm -hmm. carry the football every now and then. Yeah, and the sports analogy is amazing because if we did that in sports, no one would fucking watch the sports. Like, would watch who it. wants to clip LeBron's wings so he scores the most points as the lowest scoring player? Yep. Like, who would watch that? And it's not, it's not a productive enterprise. It's a pointless enterprise. And the same principle applies to the market, right? If you're going to clip the wings of the most productive or the most successful, right, tax the rich or whatever it may be, that's not going to help everyone. That's actually going to hurt everyone. So you're going to reduce the incentives to be productive. And it's right. the productivity that improves the quality of our lives. I was actually listening to a news story recently uh, on a liberal news station. So one of the things I do uh, is I listen to both liberal news and conservative news as well as foreign news. Mm -hmm. And that's a tool that I use to try to always stay ahead of uh, finding fake news or disinformation mm -hmm. or misinformation. Uh, and there was a, a news story on a liberal news station that was talking about uh, a university... I want to say it was somewhere in the South, may have been um, somewhere in the, on the East Coast, that uh, was lobbying to allow transgender men to play on the university's female teams, right? And right away, what, what went through my head is basically what's, yeah. what's probably going through your head. And I was like, there is no way that a, an 18-year-old man, even if he thinks he's a woman, That's right. there's no way that he like genetically, physically yeah. can be fairly pitted against a true female, even a very talented athlete, athletic female. There's no way that that's a fair match. Mm -hmm. And if you let that kind of thing happen, there's going to be outrage. There's not outrage about the gender you know, identity, mm -hmm. but outrage because what happens when that, that male, that gender, transgender female you know, athlete yeah. wins the state championship in tennis? against a female who's born female. Right. Is that fair? Is that really 
cultivating the best athletes in America, what does that mean for the Olympic games? What does that mean for? Yeah. So the sports analogy is one that came to mind because I heard that story and I was not outraged, but just frankly disappointed. Yeah. What an incredible, discouraging thing to hear as a father yeah. and as a sports fan and as an American who's, who's looking to cultivate the strongest America possible. And as a rational human being, right? There are differences between men and women biologically that are inarguable. The letters that came to mind when you brought that up were WTF. Every time I hear that, um, I, so Matt, I think it's, um, Matt Walsh. I heard this story that there was a I'll try to tell this correctly. It was a trans male EMT that thought he was a female and he was addressing Mr. Walsh in an event. And he was saying that the old biological categories of man and woman were antiquated and that there were new biological categories of, you know, whatever, LBGTQ plus. And Matt Walsh responded. He goes, no, that's categorically fundamentally wrong. He goes, for instance, you're an EMT, right? He goes, so if a biological man who said he was a woman called you as an EMT and said he was having a miscarriage, would you check him? Mm. Would you check him biologically like for the miscarriage? And the EMT was like taken aback. He's like, well, well, no, because he's like, exactly. Categorically. There are categorically fundamental differences between man and woman. It's not open for debate. It's not open for argument. It's not open for reinterpretation. It's biological reality. Yeah. And if you want to talk about giving people the equal opportunity to identify with whatever gender they want to identify with, I don't see a problem with giving people the opportunity to identify. Sure. But let's ask ourselves the question, what is happening that is making that question yes. so common? Yes. What sociologically is happening to us that's making us ask a question that the third world doesn't ask? Yes. Right. That our other developing nations don't ask, right? Why is it that we have such a, such a large component of Americans who are confused about their gender. Yes. When we don't have that happening in Africa or Latin America or China. And we've seen this obsession with gender fluidity in ancient Rome before it collapsed. We saw it in the Weimar Republic before it collapsed. So it's an open connection. I don't know how the connection actually works, but it seems like end of empire slash near hyperinflation tends to somehow encourage people to have these weird obsessions about gender fluidity. Um, and I'm with you. Like, if you want to call yourself, if you want to identify as a flag or a motorcycle or a he or a she, whatever, I don't care, actually. And you can ask for me to refer to you as whatever that thing is. I'll do and that. I can consent or I can not consent. What you cannot do is coerce people to play pretend with you. Even kids know this, right? Mm -hmm. If a kid comes huh. into a group of kids and says, you know, you're the alligator, you're the shark, and I'm the tiger. And the kids are like, well, I, I want to be, play. I want to be the helicopter. So like, you can't <laughs> tell me what to be. That's how the world works, right? You can you can play all the pretend you want, but at the end of the day, the pretend play has to be consensual. Otherwise, it doesn't function. And it has to be productive. Like, I yeah. feel like that's a big piece that gets left out of the argument. If somebody wants to self-identify as a helicopter, a motorcycle, a male, a female, yeah. whatever, I knew, a, I knew a friend in the military who self-identified as they were transgender female, so they were female, they believed they were male, but they also believed they were a gay male because they still had, they still had sexual attraction to males, right? Full circle, right? Right, <laughs> which is fine. Um, but what, what I want to make sure people understand is however you want to self-identify, let's just make sure that we're focused on being as productive as possible in whatever role we've self-identified. Yes. Oftentimes what ends up happening is 
we're losing the productivity because we're so busy self-identifying or defending what we've identified as or defending people's rights to identify that we're losing the productive piece. You know how countries are measured? GDP. What about this conversation is advancing our productivity? That's right. ESG is a great example of something that I personally am a fan of ESG. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a uh, super revolutionary concept that's going to make us a better society. I love the fact that ESG is literally nothing that commands a premium price. It's policy and hours of debate and conversation, but real attorneys get paid real money by real firms to make ESG legislation, right? Mm -hmm. And to make companies ESG certified. That's actual GDP. That's actual fiscal uh, contribution that's being made because Mm -hmm. real money is exchanging hands even though there is no real product, right? That to me is, that's what makes America amazing is that we find ways to incentivize the monetary exchange for non-tangential goods. Interesting. Uh, monetary, uh, monetary policy, uh, financial institutions, information, digital products. Like we are, we're masters at this and it's what keeps us ahead of the, of the competition. Yeah, I would agree on the intangibles in the American economy. Like Bitcoin's a great example, something that's intangible but extremely valuable. Uh, the goodwill of business combinations, brand recognition, et cetera. I'm less inclined to agree with ESG and regulation though. I think that's, as an admitted anarcho-capitalist, right? I I think there's little to no justifiable role for imposed regulation. I think most of it can be done consensually. I think all of the imposed regulation is a net decrement to productivity because you have people, the attorneys you mentioned, like they're creating laws and imposing them on people that if the laws were actually necessary, that people would consent to create them for themselves. so I don't. I, I guess I'm less less inclined to agree on that particular point, but it's just, it's a fair point. That's a fair objective. What you're saying, yeah. right? Let the people decide. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting too, because there are. Which certain- back to the original point before that. Actually, what I wanted to say was, whatever you want to self-identify as, above all, respect the freedom and sovereignty of the individual. If someone doesn't want to identify with you or play pretend with you, then respect that. Yeah. And that's all we're saying here is like honor the individual, honor their sovereignty, honor their freedom. That's what creates the best world. Yeah. I, I, so I didn't agree completely. No, you're, you're good, man. That's, if we can focus on that individual productivity, if we can focus on that individual contribution, there's, we're going to find ourselves getting along a whole lot more Yeah, we don't get along. Yeah. Agreed completely. Let's talk about oh, your shirt here, the Everyday Spy. Huh. This is your, your business. Mm-hmm. What is Everyday Spy? Is this where I can go to spy school and finally become the American James Bond I've always wanted to be? Yeah, I mean, essentially, yeah, it's, that's, that is kind of what it is. So, so Everyday Spy is a, it's my, my um, vision of how we bring practical, tangible spy skills out of espionage and apply them in everyday life to give people an unfair advantage. An unfair advantage in business, an unfair advantage in relationships, in their career, in their personal security, and securing their family. Because as much as we were just talking about how everybody wants a fair opportunity, there's only one thing people want more than a fair opportunity. Mm. They want an unfair opportunity. Mm, that's right. Right? And that's when you understand that concept, when you're the kind of person that's nodding as we are having this conversation, yeah. you're the right kind of customer for everyday spy. Right. Because it's all about 
giving people an unfair advantage by giving them a skill or teaching them some bit of knowledge that's reserved for secret intelligence officers. Right. And that knowledge is powerful because CIA has developed all of their skill sets and not all of their skill sets have to do with classified information, mm -hmm. but we've developed all of our skill sets over the course of almost 250 years because we took the best of what MI6 did before us. Mm -hmm. We applied their skill sets to our skill sets. And then we've partnered since the beginning of the OSS during World War II with Mossad. We've partnered with the Canadian Intelligence Service. We've got a Five Eyes group that's mm -hmm. comprised of the five Western intelligence services. We've continued to refine this craft of espionage, mm -hmm. but we only use it for one purpose, stealing secrets from foreign countries. State craft. And yeah. that is a very niche yeah. place to use it, right? It's shocking to me, and it was very uh, shocking and insightful to me when I left CIA. I tried to leave the skills behind, like so many of us do. When you have a bad breakup or when you leave a job, mm -hmm. you try to just erase the past and mm -hmm. start all over again. When I left CIA in 2014, I was like, oh, I got to leave all that behind and start all over again. But I couldn't because I had this giant black hole in my professional history mm -hmm. that couldn't be filled because CIA has a requirement for how much you can and can't share about mm -hmm. your background. So here I am trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And I'm unemployed for six months. My wife is unemployed because she was also former CIA. We're living in my in-law's garage with a six-month-old. Wow. It was my gosh. It was humiliating, man. Oh I'm, my God. I'm 37 years old. It was absolutely humiliating. And, uh, and that's when it kind of struck me. I was like, oh, I'm trying to do this the fair way. Yeah. CIA taught me how to lie, steal, cheat, hack, fake my way into any government organization, any company in the world. Yeah. Why don't I just use those skills to get a job now? And it worked. Wow. And then when it worked, I was like, Hmm, there's something here. And then I just kept using the skills on the job yeah. and it turned into, you know, annual promotions. It turned into more responsibility. It turned into a, a fantastic yeah. reputation in the corporate environment. It also turned into real productivity because I was bringing these skills into a corporate environment. And uh, the company I was working for at the time was CBS Health. Okay. CBS Health, when they hired me, they were a growing uh, acquisition-based company. They were, they were uh, 13 in the Fortune Top 100. Mm -hmm. By the time I left, four years later, they were Fortune 7. Hmm. And every office that I touched, every place that I went, I applied more spy skills into how that office was running, how it was operating, how it was hiring, how it was spending, how it was negotiating, and transforming hmm. the power of the company. And you know, when, you, when you're in a corporate environment and you're getting paid $170,000 a year and you, you're on par for a 20% annual bonus at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. That's all well and good, but you're also making a bunch of money for someone else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's when it kind of struck me. I was like, I could teach these skills to anybody and just keep the money myself right? and be on my way towards wealth because money is opportunity. Yes. And that's where Everyday Spy was born. What a super cool story. Um, wow. <laughs> so the you're taking then, I don't... I, what is the category of the tools that have been developed over time? This is psychological tools, I'm sure, negotiating tactics, I'm not sure what else. These things have been refined over centuries, and now you are releasing them or making them available to a wider audience that's not engaged in statecraft per se, but could be engaged in any any pursuit, entrepreneurial, presumably. Right. So the, the way that the skills are kind of broken up, there's a national security triangle, and it's it's not... Um, easy to find, but it's out there if you dig into some of the, the documentation about statecraft and, mm -hmm. and government policy. 
But there's a national security triangle, and at each of the points of the triangle, mm-hmm. there's a different element. There's power is one element, influence is another element, mm-hmm. and security is the third element. Mm-hmm. As a CIA officer and as any national security professional, you're taught these three elements that create the national security triangle because you're taught and trained to put every decision through which of these three categories does your decision apply to. Mm-hmm. And it gives people a common language that they can use. So if, if I'm talking to you and you're at NSA and we're talking to somebody who's uh, on the Hill and whatever else, we're using the same terminology. Mm-hmm. When I left CIA, I realized that that same national security triangle applied to everyday life. Mm-hmm. Only the words weren't the same words that we use. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about power, influence, and security. Mm-hmm. What we talk about are wealth, mm-hmm. health, and relationships. Mm-hmm. And each of those disciplines mm-hmm. align to uh, the national security triangle in everyday life, just like a hand in a glove. Mm-hmm. Because then when you start to break down all of the training and all of the education that CIA taught me about that national security triangle, it just fits under these different headings. Wow. So Everyday Spy was built the same way. So my company is really just a replica of CIA, built to serve the, the constituents, built to serve the average person, yeah. instead of being built to serve elite operators. Do you find yourself, so obviously you've become adept in a number of these skills, both through your training and now through your teaching. Do you find yourself unconsciously using them? I mean, it doesn't, because again, these skills are psychological and relational. Do they just become embedded in your basic character, like day to day? And and what has that experience been like? Yeah, they do. They become part of who you are. Mm. Just like, uh, I mean, guitar players and piano players and uh, and mathematicians. Mm. Like they just they learn how to do things without even thinking about them. Mm-hmm. So we certainly learn a number of skills. I wouldn't say necessarily on a on a subconscious level, but certainly on an unconscious level. Mm-hmm. You're not consciously aware that you're doing the thing until you turn your attention towards the fact that you're doing the thing that you're doing. Mm. Um, and it's been an interesting journey. The, the real powerful part of it happened when I left CIA and my wife left CIA with me, thank God, because she's my best friend in the world now. Mm. And part of that is not because we're like a perfect married couple, and it's not because we're best friends, uh, because we're like lifelong partners. Anybody who's been married longer than three years knows that marriage is a pain in the ass. Mm. But we are both former CIA officers that have been removed from CIA. Mm. So if we want to surround ourselves with anything like the people that we used to work with, and there are some amazing people at CIA, Mm. the only option we have is to work together. Right. Right. So she's my outlet to continue to connect with that caliber of person. And I'm her connection to that caliber of person still. And when I say that caliber of person, what I mean is the level of investment in a stronger United States the level of intelligence and critical thinking skills and uh, and a, a ability to kind of separate yourself from the, the hype, mm-hmm. that's what we become for each other. And it's it's a lonely existence mm-hmm. because you, you learn how to read when people are lying to you, when they're mm-hmm. interested in you. You learn how to read when people are stressed or when they have anxiety and, and you know how to fix it and you want to help them fix it, but you also know that most people want to talk about fixing and never actually. Right, right, right. So then you're always asking yourself, like, who's worth the investment of my time and energy because they're actually going to act on what I teach them. But now you have this filtering mechanism, which is your business, right? Will people put skin in the game and actually invest in learning the skills that you have to offer? Exactly right. And that's the thing that I love about business. Business 
business is the opportunity for all of us mm. to give what we have to, and meet the level of the investor who's coming back in. Yeah. The person who pays the most right. is showing the most investment in leveraging the skills they learn from you. Yeah. It's very easy to prioritize that person and invest back in this. And even as you're doing that, you're creating products. You're creating productivity, GDP, that's right. improving the economy and, yes. and continuing to continuing to make the America a stronger country or the yeah. world a stronger world. Well, right? and most fundamentally, because you're actually improving the individual market actors, right? Their basic psychological makeup or, or the tools they have to, to deal with the world. What's the old saying that there's no better place to invest than in yourself because it pays the most dividends yep. in everything that you do. Right. And I'm sure you've seen the same thing. I mean, you don't have a podcast because- you're trying to be selective in who you help. You have a podcast so that you can help as many people as possible. Mm, yeah. And because you know that only a small percentage of all the people you reach are going to put skin in the game, learn a new skill, put themselves through the discomfort of learning mm -hmm. and applying and growing. So you cast the widest net to give the most people the opportunity to grow. Yes. But they're the ones that have to act on it. That and the groupies, <laughs> which are nerdy middle-aged white guys mostly. <laughs> Um, speaking of podcasts, you have a podcast. I do. Everyday Espionage? Yeah, Everyday Espionage. What What do you guys talk about on there? Is this, are you talking about the business and these tools or, or what are the topics? Yeah, so I have a very, I have a unique kind of podcast, unique style. Um, I have, I boil down espionage lessons that apply to everyday life into short, like nine to 20 minute segments. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just me. And I talk to a microphone as if you're going back to college or back to high school or, you know, you're watching YouTube. And I just give people very practical guidance and instruct them on in how to use one specific spy skill and apply it to everyday life in your health, wealth, or relationships triangle, hmm. right? So that people can, my goal is that people listen to the podcast and in 10 minutes, they learn something that they can then apply on the job to get ahead in the job. And then they jump back in the car and they listen to the next episode on their way back home and they learn one thing in 10 minutes that allows them to, you know, make a good impression with their wife or their husband and maybe have a romantic night together, which, you know, is not always something that happens after you've been married for a few years. <laughs> so that's kind of the goal. The goal is just how do I give people tactical tips that they can immediately leverage and use for an unfair advantage? That is so cool. So spy school on the go. Spy right? school on the go. In your ear. Yep. <laughs> that is so freaking cool. <laughs> what kind of, how long have you been doing that? So I launched that in 2018, um, and I've been blessed to be on the iTunes top 100 multiple times. I've been in the top 10 multiple times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm 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 in the top one percent or the top point zero five percent of podcasts in the world right now. Wow! Congratulations! Exciting! Thank you very much. I mean, you're right up there too. So that's very cool. That's <laughs> very cool. Um, are you, so. The difference between what you're going to learn at Everyday Spy versus the podcast, you just go more in depth with your Everyday Spy students or is there a lot of crossover? Yeah. So it's the same, it's a very similar model to what, uh, what you see in a lot of digital learning. Mm -hmm. What I'm giving people in Everyday Espionage in my podcast is kind of a shotgun approach. Mm -hmm. Like here's a little bit of everything. It's not connected. It doesn't grow like a lesson plan grows because some days people will listen to one episode and they may not listen to another episode for three weeks. It's very much practical, tangible, use it right now kind of guidance. Mm -hmm. What I do with Everyday Spy is I then take those lessons, I contextualize them, I format them, and I give them, uh, I deliver them in a way that people can actually grow in a logical fashion, right? So they can learn to master not just a skill, 
but a concept that applies to that skill. Got it, got it. Right? So it's the difference between familiarity with the podcast and mastery with the course, got course it. selection. Got it. And then as people master skills in my everyday spy world, they also then usually want to learn how to apply those skills in real life. Mm. So then we also have a series of live events where people get to do all the crazy spy shit that you alluded to in the beginning. We teach people how to drive cars offensively. We teach people how to shoot weapons. We teach people how to go in disguise. We teach people how to how to operate in the street and drop dead drops and give covert signals. I've actually got a course coming up in St. Petersburg, Florida in June where we're teaching people all the street tradecraft. That is so cool. Um, and then they'll learn it and we'll apply it to everyday life, right? Here's how a dead drop and what the skills are around a dead drop. Here's how they improve your personal security and your relationships with your boss, your wife, your kids. That is so freaking cool. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I guess I'm extra fanboying about this right now. Cause I used to read the James Bond novels. I actually didn't read them. I did the audiobook, mm. and man, they're just so good. Like even better than the movies and the movies are really good. And, and so many of the things like, I, I don't know, I guess, uh, the author Ian Fleming actually did a lot of homework cause it seemed like these were legit espionage tactics and tools and stories. And I just always was so fascinated with that. And it sounds like now you're delivering that to real people. Yeah. You know, the, the, it's still a big question mark, whether Ian Fleming was actually a MI6 asset or not. And right. a lot of, a lot of documentation out there suggests- Because he ran in those circles, right? And the same with Lacar or Lacare. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but another uh, author who, who created a number of super famous uh, spy fiction novels. Mm -hmm. um, you've got a lot of crossover- in terms of spy fiction and spy entertainment, mm -hmm. but that's entertainment only. Mm -hmm. It's not educational. Mm -hmm. What's been beneficial for me is I think that I am the first person to actually introduce spy education. Mm. And it explains why we've had awesome success and awesome growth and no competition because my stuff isn't perfect. Mm. My, it's not perfect. It's not as good as it's going to be. You know, it's very much brand new entrepreneur figuring things out. Right. But in a in a in a pool of one fish, right, right, uh -huh. right, you're the only option. Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> uh, you mentioned disguises. Is there any hope for a Neanderthal like me getting in disguise? Oh yeah, man, <laughs> we could change your look today. It's uh, yeah, it's all about disguise. Is really all about taking the things that are the most immediately noticeable about you and dampening them. Oh, okay, right. So what we're all taught to do socially is accentuate the things uh -huh. that make us special, right? Accentuate those big arms that you have. Accentuate so the strong jaw. Looser shirts. Baggy square shirts, yeah. jackets, right? Uh, cover up the hair with a with a beanie or with a sock hat. Break up your eyes with some glasses, yeah. right? Convince you to not shave for two weeks, three weeks, maybe even shave a goatee, gray the goatee a little bit, right? You're not going to look like Robert Breedlove anymore. Yeah. You still might look like a large male, yeah, but you're not going to look like Rob Love. I remember. I think this was in the James Bond book Moonraker. I could be wrong about this, but there was one point where the villain had all his operatives completely shave their head and grow large mustaches, and for whatever reason, that like totally made them indistinguishable. It was like hard. It's very hard to identify someone that's completely shaved their head and grown a large mustache. Hmm. Is, so, it, is at least in difficult to distinguish them from each other. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which was kind of the point. I think they were all supposed to be henchmen or whatever. <laughs> um, okay. So you're also known for being a brilliant geopolitical thinker. You've got a lot of very interesting opinions on the world, where we're at, how we got to here. So I'm hoping today we can jump down some of these rabbit holes. And um, th these are topics that we 
inescapably land on going into the Bitcoin rabbit hole is like, well, what happens next? What happens when you separate money from state? How does the nation state respond? What does human socioeconomic organization look like after Bitcoin? Because it takes away a lot of the revenue streams for the nation state, like taxation and inflation. So these trying to get a handle on where we are today, I think is just one recurrent theme we keep coming back to. Um, so for instance, China today, very big topic in a lot of people's minds. Um, I would, I guess we would say they are the burgeoning world superpower, perhaps the second place world superpower, something like that. Uh, from a monetary standpoint, I know they've been the biggest producer and importer of gold for the past like seven to 10 years. Um, so they might be making a move to become the global reserve currency, something like that. What is What are your views on China and particularly as they relate to Taiwan? Is this, um, and maybe you could explain kind of the, the strategic importance of Taiwan and how do you see China today and how does Taiwan play into that mix? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a super relevant geopolitical question. And it's one that I'm hoping we're going to go back and forth on because otherwise it could very quickly turn into like a one-sided lecture about China, right? But uh, first I want to define what China is, right? So for for the purposes of whatever discussion you and I have, I, I want to make sure that we start by defining it as the second largest economy in the world based on GDP and like without disagreement. doesn't matter if you're red or if you're blue or if you're, you know, uh, African, or if you're Latino, everybody agrees China is the second largest economy in the world. Everybody also agrees that China's economic growth rate far exceeds that of the United States. Mm. Japan was the second largest economy up until about four years ago, mm. right? So China has already surpassed, grown and surpassed the second largest mm. economy to become the second largest economy. So that's for sure what they are when we talk about them. They are also the country that is growing at a rate where their growth to spending ratio, specifically in military development, technology development, their growth to spending is the highest ratio anywhere else because nobody's growing as quickly as China. Mm -hmm. So even though they may spend more, the amount of growth compared to the amount of spending is less. Mm. So that's where the threat, when we talk about the threat of China comes from. And inside the world of intelligence, we, we refer to China as a global power competitor, a GPC country, mm -hmm. or a near-peer threat. Mm. Those are the two monikers that whether you're talking to a general or whether you're talking to a politician, they will understand those terms. Global power competitor or near-peer threat. Mm. In both of those senses, everybody outside, everybody in Washington, D.C., everybody in the DOD, all view China through the lens of threat. Mm. Because what is a competitor? A threat. Mm. And of course, a threat is a threat. And both terminologies include that moniker. Now, what are they threatening? They're not threatening your life or my life. They're not threatening the well-being of our families. They're threatening the current order of power mm. because the United States, being the largest economy, is the world's superpower. Mm -hmm. Whoever takes that top productive economic role becomes the world's next superpower. Mm -hmm. So what is the United States when we're not the world's superpower anymore? No one's really asking that question. Mm -hmm. And that's the real concern uh, about China. That's the concern that we all really have is what happens if China becomes the top dog? Yeah. 
and we are not, especially when you consider China doesn't work, uh, you know, it doesn't have a negative debt debt to uh, import to output ratio, uh, yeah. uh, export to import ratio. It's a net exporter. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. It's a net profitable country. Yeah. We are actually yeah. this week in a crisis about expanding our debt ceiling and defaulting on our own debt. Right. Because we have to extend our debt acceptance, we're already 117% leveraged yeah. as a country. Yeah. That's going to kill most households for sure. Yeah. Right? So China doesn't have that problem. So it's really hard for us to see what's the future going to be. So yeah. I just wanted to start there by defining what they are and and how the U.S. government and national security infrastructure see them. Yeah. And most of the U.S., I don't know if it's most of, but a large percentage of the U.S. debt outstanding is held by China and Japan and several other creditor countries. Um, what? So where does Taiwan play into this? Taiwan has, I guess, some geographic st- strategic significance, and there's been some struggle over who controls Taiwan for some time. Who? Where? What's going on in Taiwan currently, and then what is the strategic significance of it? Yeah, so, and you're, you're, dovetailing perfectly, right? So when we talk about the global competition between the United States and China, you have this question of Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Taiwan is not a strategic location. Mm. There's nothing strategic about the location of the island off the coast of China and the South China Mm. Seas. There's nothing strategic there. It goes back to when Mao Zedong and the Communist Party took over China in 1949. Mm -hmm. When that happened, the Chiang Kai-shek government that was in charge of China was a nationalist government that was pro-Western. So in that civil war where the communists took power of the country that was nationalistically held, they ran that government off mainland China and they expelled them to Taiwan. Mm. So the, the government of China that helped us in World War II, the government of China that leans pro-West, the democracy that has ever, the closest thing to democracy that has ever lived on Chinese mainland, is now on Taiwan. Mm. And part of our World War II commitments were, hey, we're going to, we promise to support and defend the democracy that is burgeoning on Taiwan. Mm. And China could not take Taiwan in 1949. They couldn't get across, it was a Mm. communist party, it was a takeover. They couldn't get across the 70 mile straight. Mm. So there was space there. And then that turned into, you know, 70 years of this awkward policy where the United States officially doesn't recognize Taiwan as a country. Mm-hmm. We officially recognize that China and Taiwan are one China that operates under two systems, hmm. right? And that's our official stance. Very, very few countries in the world actually recognize Taiwan as a country. And that's where things get sticky because the relationship between the United States and Taiwan for those 70 years was so strong that we were able to use our economic gravitas to fund the development of Taiwan. So while China was still kind of cobbling stones together mm. after their revolution, Taiwan got the benefit of being connected to the West. If you recall, the same thing happened in Japan. We dropped two nuclear weapons in Japan, eviscerated their entire previous political structure. Mm-hmm. The reason Japan grew back so quickly was because America invested and America basically took the lead in rebuilding Japan. We did the same thing in Taiwan. Mm. Now, Taiwan, where they're strategically uh, meaningful is that they are the world's number one manufacturer of semiconductors, something to the tune of 95% of all semiconductor manufacturing happens in Taiwan. Wow. Now the vast, 
because when we invested in their development, what we invested in was manufacturing of high-tech development. Okay. We didn't want to create manufacturing jobs here in the United States because manufacturing jobs are low margin, et cetera, et cetera. So we taught the Taiwanese to do it. And then we just had this agreement where, hey, we will develop and create the chips. We'll engineer the chips. We'll send you the designs. You manufacture the chips. And then you get to do that for everybody. So then- the Chinese did that. The Europeans did that. They conduct, they create semiconductors for everybody in the world. And so this has become a point of vulnerability for the U.S. to have Absolutely. all that. Literally, yeah. okay. Absolutely. So now what you have is China has set under Xi Jinping a plan to be, by 2025, the world's largest high-tech exporter. Mm-hmm. The only way they hit that goal is if they absorb Taiwan's exporting capabilities of high-tech semiconductors. Otherwise, they miss that 2025 goal. And the United States and Europe depend on semiconductors from Taiwan Mm -hmm. to not just fuel our weapons, but to fuel our healthcare devices and our microwaves, the technology that we use for school students, Mm -hmm. like everything relies on semiconductors. AI, uh, I don't know whether or not you know this or not, maybe you do. The AI that is revolutionizing the world right now, the vast majority of those chips are actually created by a company called NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. NVIDIA is a legacy video game company. So AI is fueled on the back of NVIDIA. NVIDIA creates chips by engineering them only. Guess who manufactures every one of those AI chips? Taiwan. So whoever takes Taiwan has the market cornered in terms of technology advancements, weapons manufacturing, healthcare devices, and they control the supply chain for everybody else. And what is, so this is a creature of the US's creation, right? That we basically pushed or re-engineered this economy to be a semiconductor focused economy. Now it's become a point of vulnerability because this is a single point of failure for us. Yeah. Uh, what is the U.S. competitive response to that? So what you've seen, that's where you hear about the CHIP Act, the Biden administration, the Biden mm-hmm. CHIP Act, the CHIP wars, mm-hmm. if you've heard that term. Um, over the last year, uh, the current administration has created uh, multiple incentives and deterrence for for um, chip development, chip engineering Mm -hmm. to be shared with China. So they still want their chips to be manufactured in Taiwan, but they want to make sure that none of the Western partners are sharing the technology itself with China. So they're trying to block China out of understanding and getting access to modern day chips. They're also trying to create a domestic manufacturing base Mm -hmm. for semiconductors, but that's going to be a five to seven year project. Mm -hmm. And one of the core ways that they're trying to get that manufacturing base in the U.S. is they're trying to give TSMC, the company in Taiwan, mm-hmm. they're trying to give them a home base here in the United States so that the entire TSMC capability has a second location, mm. right, on domestic pro- on domestic land inside mm-hmm. the United States. That's the response that we're seeing diplomatically and commercially. The response that you're seeing militarily is all that you're reading about in the newspaper, mm-hmm. right? All the passing of American ships through the Straits of Taiwan, right. all the visits of heads of state to Taiwan and the challenge, the counter response from China and Chinese exercises off the coast of Taiwan. That's all demonstrating like this clashing of swords, yeah, saber rattling right. to say Taiwan is, is ours. It's what the United States is saying. Yeah. The United States is not saying Taiwan is free. They're saying Taiwan is ours. Right. And China is saying, no, 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 Taiwan is ours. Uh-huh. And when you look at Taiwan... As an independent nation itself, it's a fascinating case study because they have a standing army that is not professionalized. 
Yeah. The Taiwanese themselves don't know how to fight. They don't really want to fight. When you do your mandatory military service there, it's a six month stint, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not at all a professional army. It's not at all a force that's ready to defend itself. It's not a force that wants to defend itself. It's actually culturally uh, a negative stigma to be in the military. Yeah. You're supposed to be a business person or an entrepreneur or in a big company. That's how you show your success culturally in Taiwan. The Okay. So I imagine, I'm just speculating here without too much knowledge on this, when the semiconductor focus of the Taiwanese economy was established by the U.S. or imposed by the U.S., semiconductors were probably much less relevant in the grand scheme of the global economy, right? Because we weren't into the digital age at that point. But now semiconductors are in everything, right? Everything that we do in life is mediated by some electronic device, the vast majority of which use semiconductors to some capacity. Is that part of this this rising tension between China and the U.S.? Is like the whole global economy is just shifting towards digital technology or semiconductor facilitated technology. And now Taiwan, which may have not been as big of a deal in the past, has now become kind of a flashpoint. So yes, the the short answer is yes. And the more nuanced answer is going back to Obama in 2010, Obama announced what was then known as an Asia pivot. Mm-hmm. The United States was very focused on a global war on terrorism, the GWAT, mm-hmm. Afghanistan, Iraq, Kuwait. We had been dominated by 20 years of fighting terrorism. The Chinese were not fighting terrorists. The Chinese were expanding their sphere of influence in Southeast Asia, mm. winning friends in the Philippines, winning friends in in Malaysia, winning friends in Vietnam, Cambodia, or trying to use Soviet era tactics to gain influence in those countries, mm. right? Because remember, the, the Soviets were the ones that taught the Chinese how to be communists. Right. So you're seeing a lot of that, that legacy Russian habit in the way China executes its geopolitical mm. influence. So when the United States finally woke up to say, oh, like we won World War II because we were able to cross the Pacific. Now we're losing our sphere of influence in the South Pacific and China's growing. Mm. All the conflict about the South China Seas, I'm sure you remember reading about that, right? The the growing threat to China, uh, the growing threat from China. And then you started, uh, more of our Five Eyes partners started to report on very aggressive Chinese intelligence efforts, uh, primarily through, you know, college universities, um, through institutes that were located in targeting students. Um, so as that came to be, it became a more prevalent, more obvious threat. So Obama shifted and started funding efforts to pivot our resources back towards Asia. Hmm. How do we support ourselves in Asia? Hmm. So the, the reason we have the conflict we have is really over the strategic power of the South Pacific. Hmm. Taiwan being in the South Pacific and also now having this relevance Mm -hmm. as a semiconductor manufacturing hub in 2023, 13 years after the pivot was announced, Mm -hmm. all that does is exacerbate the need Mm. and exacerbate the timeline. You've got other layers, you know, layers upon layers that are going on too. The war in Ukraine, the the political divide in the United States, the the rise of Xi Jinping, right? 13 years ago, he was just, I think a two-term, Chinese minister. Yeah. Now he's been in power for, you know, 20 years. Just lifetime dictator, right? Yeah. A- a- authoritarian. Yeah. Wow. Um, are we going to see semi- semiconductor manufacturing diversify out of Taiwan as a result of this? That's the one thing I haven't heard anybody talk about. Outside of the United States creating a domestic capability, mm-hmm. 
I have not heard about Europe talking about creating a domestic capability. I've not heard about any of the competitors in Southeast Asia trying to create that capability. It really is an interesting thing. And I think it's because the world, like if I was a politician in Cambodia or Vietnam, it's one thing to be the the other person who creates shoes yeah. or the other person who creates trinkets. Yeah. But if you become the person who creates, if you become the country that creates semiconductors, that's just putting a giant target on your country, especially if you're right next door to China. Gotcha. Right? So it's better to just say, ooh, it's somebody else's problem. Okay. We're going to buy our healthcare equipment from China. Yeah. It's all, and we're going to keep everything peaceful, right? Um, that's what it boils down to is the two leading economic superpowers, the near-peer competitors. Yes. They absolutely need to control the future manufacturing. They have a huge appetite for semiconductors. Wow, that makes a ton of sense. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, the Gold Investment Letter. The Gold Investment Letter helps sophisticated investors navigate capital markets and maximize their profits in trading gold, silver, and mining stocks. The Gold Investment Letter seeks out the most undervalued companies and identifies special situations in the mining sector and then provides in-depth analysis on both their financial positions and future prospects. The Gold Investment Letter explores many complex domains, such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends, all with the goal of making you a better investor. The Gold Investment Letter offers a free version and a paid premium version, and I strongly recommend you at least sign up for the free version, because after having read a few of these issues, I can promise you it is a treasure trove of good information. You can sign up for the free newsletter today at goldinvestmentletter.com. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. The concentration of semiconductor manufacturing in Taiwan seems to be a problem. 
Um, is this a potential catalyst for an armed conflict between China and the United States? I think that's the question that everybody's really asking themselves when it comes to what does a future conflict between these two near-peer competitors really look like? When you consider war as a topic itself, wars are not fought over ideals. Mm -hmm. They never really have been. They've always been fought over economics, mm -hmm. right? When you look at the Gulf War, the Gulf War was a war catalyzed because of oil, mm -hmm. right? I mean, even if you go all the way back to the Napoleonic Wars, the Napoleonic Wars were a response to boycott from uh, boycotts from the UK that were preventing goods from getting to Napoleonic right. France, right? right? So wars, the thing that makes it worth it to spend all that money and spend all those lives is economies. 100%. And I that's what we're seeing right now, even with Ukraine and Russia, Yes. right? It's not a war of ideals. It's not a war for this, the future of democracy. Those are all things that we're told. Mm -hmm. It really is a war because Russia knows, Russia knows yes. its future economic livelihood is mm -hmm. tied to Ukraine and it cannot let that go. Yeah, no, that's a great framing. I'm reminded of the Bastiat quote, if goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. Mm. And as I often say on this show, I say money is the means and ends of all warfare. Money sort of interpreted broadly because obviously it's resources, right? It could be land, oil, productive capacity, whatever it may be. But the point is, you're only going to engage in the most expensive enterprise in human history, which is military combat, if there is some prospect of economic gain. Yeah. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it, right? It's not a profitable business. You wouldn't engage in it. Um, and this also plays into where we think Bitcoin is such a radical phenomenon because it makes those resources harder to steal. If people have recourse to put wealth in something like Bitcoin, very hard to confiscate that forcibly. Mm -hmm. So presumably that's in the long run, there's a disincentive to armed conflict. Um, okay. Sorry. Sidebar. Well, I think that those are all great points, right? I think it's a great point that decentralized banking, decentralized money yes. begins to kind of tip the scales against the benefits or the incentives for militarized conflict. Yes. And you're exactly right. Military conquest is the most expensive endeavor out there. Mm -hmm. And no one's going to invest in that without without the intention of having a higher return on investment. Yes. Inside the world of war theory, there's there's multiple types of wars in war theory, but the two that I want to mention here are there's interstate war and there's intrastate war. Mm. Interstate war is what we're seeing right now between Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It's what we saw when America invaded Afghanistan. It's what we saw in the Gulf War. It's what we saw in World War II. When two standalone states, sovereign nations, when they're in conflict with each other or one invades the other, that's mm -hmm. called interstate conflict. Mm -hmm. It is extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. It's logistics, like moving troops, moving equipment, moving weapons from one place to another. It's it's expensive in lives. It's expensive in terms of, of the opportunity cost because mm -hmm. when you mobilize troops and weapons to go somewhere else, you're losing productivity yes. in other endeavors. Right. right. So it's a very expensive maneuver if you're going to pursue interstate war. Mm -hmm. So what the world discovered circa 2011 with Syria mm. is that intra-state war or a war inside of one state between two factions of the state, mm. that really started in Syria. Mm. And interestingly enough, guess what war was just recently announced as over this week? Syria. And guess who won? Bashar al-Assad, right? Mm. The dictator that the whole world was working against. So it's really interesting when you compare what 
what is announced about Syria this week, right? Syria was just welcomed back into the Arab League. Yeah. Like the all the Arab nations that used to fight against Syria and fund the the opposition to mm-hmm. the Assad regime, uh, all of those Arab parties are now inviting the the president of Syria to come back to the fold, hmm. right? So all of those sanctions, all of the death, all of the warring promises. If you remember the. Uh, Assad was the one that used chemical weapons against the rebellion and right. in the famous red line incident that Obama never actually took action on, right? Mm. So this has been a huge, interesting piece, 12 years of history to see how dictatorship and authoritarianism can win yeah. no matter what we say. And that that sort of victory is what really fuels Putin and Xi Jinping to say, Maybe America doesn't have it all figured out. Maybe they really are just making propaganda of their own that democracy is the best thing in the world because Syria is still standing in the hands of Assad. Yeah. And they said that would never happen. Yeah, that's a that's a great point and it seems like for all the advantages of decentralization, free market economies, you know, you get a lot more wealth creation, productivity as we've touched on, there does seem to be this drawback which is you're not as strong militarily, perhaps, as a centralized, as a super centralized police state, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, that can just move more with less effort, right? Whereas we suffer a lot of democratic gridlock here in the US, an authoritarian China can just move on a dime, right? It's like whatever uh, uh, Xi Jinping says. Xi Jinping, thank you. Can't think of his name. Whatever he says goes, right? So everyone just kind of follows suit. Um, yeah, that's a tough one, right? That's, that's how, just, how do we deal with that problem? Well, my my theory is that's where you're seeing the rise in discussion about uh, central bank digital currencies, mm. right? What are they? CB CBDCs. CBDCs. Yeah, you're seeing this as a as a workable solution because blockchain technology, without a doubt, is superior technology. Nobody argues that. Nobody in the health sector, the educational sector, the financial sector, everybody agrees blockchain technology is a massive evolution in, in terms of technology. Mm. It's also a technology that plays well with AI, mm-hmm. right? The two make each other more secure. So the world's not trying to necessarily work against blockchain. Mm. But when you have decentralized banking, currencies like Bitcoin, those currencies have two fundamental problems. The first fundamental problem is that the early adopters are oftentimes illicit users because they're trying to use money that's not on the market. Mm-hmm. That's why you saw so much of it being used uh, in human trafficking and so much of it being used in drugs. And even now you're seeing digital currencies being used in fentanyl trafficking, right? Mm-hmm. And and whether a big part of that is a narrative around those currencies, but there are actual use cases that demonstrate that there is accuracy to that narrative. Mm-hmm. The second big thing that goes against them is that there's no way, like you were saying, to create domestic productivity around a currency that's not being tracked or managed by the state. So mm-hmm. if they're if they can't draw taxes out of it, if they can't draw profit out of it, then the the state doesn't really want to support it, mm-hmm. and policymakers don't want to support it, and it and the people who decide what can and can't be adopted at scale are the policymakers of the nation states themselves. Mm-hmm. So their way around that has been the development of CBDC, right? Yeah. And no, I think the the headline example is China, mm-hmm. who last year outlawed and made all digital currencies, all cryptocurrencies, mm-hmm. illegal. 
while they developed their own internal CBDCs. Of course. And now they're making them mandatory, right? Yeah. Now people are getting paid. Sovereign uh, uh, state workers are being in, are being paid now in yes. digital currency issued by the state of China. Yeah. And it's also instrumental or even indispensable to social engineering programs like the Chinese social credit score system. Mm. Uh, you have to be able to selectively control people's money, turn it off, Etc. to socially engineer them yep. into the outcomes that, that the state desires. Yeah, forcing behaviors. Um, yeah, well, the Bitcoin thing, you know, and it's illicit use cases. I think the whole argument is just completely bunk mm -hmm. because a tool is amoral, right? Yep. Meaning it doesn't have a morality, right? You can use a hammer to do something productive like build a house or you can use a hammer to do something destructive like bash a skull. Um, to try and assign moral culpability to Bitcoin, it's like, oh, well, <laughs> sex traffickers or drug dealers use it. Well, they also use a lot of US dollars. Yep, they use fact, cash, exactly. They've, the vast majority of every criminal transaction that's ever been conducted in the past 100 years has been conducted in US dollars. Yeah, you don't see anyone demonizing the US dollar about that, right? right? It's the, To try and blame the tool, I think, is just a failure of rationality. Um, and to the other point that you can't extract, you can't easily tax Bitcoin. You can't obviously manage it or govern it or regulate it at all. Um, that is a feature, not a bug, as far as I'm concerned. Now, the state doesn't like it Correct. because the state can't unilaterally extract wealth through it. However, we have to consider that everything the state is extracting is theft, right? So you're, you're extracting these resources from productive market actors, to the extent that you stop extracting from them, you stop stealing from them, you're actually increasing the incentives for market actors to be productive. So it's a net, I think it's a major net benefit for humanity in terms of innovation, productivity, et cetera. Um, and the last caveat I would say is just on blockchain technology. This is something you'll hear in the Bitcoin community. It's a farce. There's Bitcoin is the only blockchain technology. Everything else is either a gambling device or a scam, basically. Um, now, maybe we're over, overly generalizing, but I think if you study the past 14 years of market history in and, in and around Bitcoin and crypto, the thesis has largely been proven. So it's interesting though, because you have this tool in Bitcoin that's the ultimate enemy of the state, yet it's the ultimate enemy of the state precisely because it's the ultimate benefit to the individual. Right. It goes back to our conversation about equality, mm -hmm. right? Guess what the state does not want? Right. The state does not want- Fairness. The individual- Yes. To be at the same level of power as the state. Yes. Right. They want the they want sovereignty over- Yes. Right. The people. They want you to be distracted. They want you to be working. They want you to be engaged in- domestic matters while they're engaged in larger matters. And they do. They want to extract your wealth as as the price, mm -hmm. right? As the currency of their efficiency. Mm. There's a there's an, an awesome triangle. Again, I'm a big fan of triangles. There's this awesome social triangle that talks about the evolution of society. And if if, if I've heard if you've heard this before, mm -hmm. just tell me to shut up. On the bottom of this triangle is tribalism. I'm sorry, on the bottom of this triangle is individualism, mm -hmm. right? When you and I were cavemen, you eat what you hunt, mm -hmm. I eat what I hunt. Right. If you don't hunt, you go hungry. If I don't shut the cave with a giant rock, a bear eats me, mm -hmm. right? That's how it worked. You do you, I do me, mm -hmm. game over. 
we evolved and organized ourselves into the next tier up the triangle, which was tribes, right? Mm -hmm. Tribalism. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, hey, I'm pretty good at climbing trees and grabbing coconuts. Mm -hmm. You're really good at hunting deer. Let's work together, mm -hmm. become a tribe, and I'll grab your coconuts and you hunt my deer and we'll trade. Mm -hmm. But the guy across the street, like the people that live across the lake, fuck them. We'll go hunt, we'll go kill them. Yeah. And then we'll take their women, hunt yeah. their deer and eat their coconut. Yeah. Right? It was tribe against tribe. Yeah. Well, the next tier above tribalism is called the state. Yeah. When you move from individualism to tribalism, you gain some efficiency. I don't have to learn to hunt deer. You don't have to learn to climb trees. Mm -hmm. But we lose some freedom. Mm -hmm. Because now I'm depending on you. I have to ask you for meat. You have mm -hmm. to ask me for vegetables mm -hmm. and fruit, right? So we lose some freedom. Well, guess what happens when you move from tribalism to state? You lose more freedom. Mm. Because what the state has to offer you is they can centralize and create scales of efficiency around policing, protection, yeah. education for the future, right? Social welfare systems to protect you when you're old and to take mm -hmm. care of the sick and the needy. So the state is bringing value mm. to the community, and that's how they do it. But then inside that state triangle, there's another triangle mm -hmm. where you have different levels of state actors, mm -hmm. right? That go from decentralized states to authoritarian states. Mm -hmm. But this social construct means that as you go up this social ladder, you increase efficiency, but you lose individual freedom. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Right? So the state knows that. that. They're the ones that came up with the theory. They understand that. So their job is to keep people satisfied yeah right let them eat bread yeah. or let them eat cake i think that was what the what the uh, queen said what do they say in i think it was ancient rome bread and circuses right bread and circuses yeah right give them let them deal with that and then keep them out of the larger matters yeah but you're exactly right that cryptocurrency did bitcoin is uh as the leading example takes that away to throw it, yeah. it makes it so that individuals now don't have to rely on the efficiencies of the state is it hyperbole to say that the state is kind of like a modern slavery complex and that it's using these different mechanisms to control the lives of people and enrich itself? I wouldn't say that's that's straight up hyperbole because when you look at other democracies mm -hmm. around the world, most notoriously, if you look at the U United Arab Emirates, mm -hmm. they're a democracy and a close ally to the United States. They are a perfect example of modern day slavery, mm. right? They bring in foreign workers and they hold them to contracts. They take their passports and they force them to work for low wages, mm. right? Because they have a system that has allowed that to happen. And of mm. course, we support that system because we get oil from the UAE. So we benefit, yeah. right? So you're not necessarily wrong that it's a modern construct of slavery. Mm. Uh, but the I think the big difference between the slavery that we're all so familiar with when we talk yeah. about slavery and current slavery is, is that slaves of the past were taken yes were taken away from right. one point of freedom and then forced into a world of right of forced labor whereas for us we're born into this system that's already forced labor right right and you do have the opportunity to break free yes but that's not an equal opportunity yeah i would say that we've definitely progressed in that sense that in the past as i understand it ancient slavery like if you're born a slave in ancient egypt building a pyramid there's no social mobility. Like yep. that's what you do until you die. Today, there does seem to be the possibility of social mobility through, you know, changing jurisdictions or becoming an entrepreneur, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, not a lot. Like it's still rare, right? If you're if you're in those, if you are a wage slave or domestic slave, that you can get stuck in that situation. But there's at least some opportunity or some option to escape it. Whereas in the past, there seemed to be none at all. 
Um, but it does seem to be a useful framing where it's not to say good guys, bad guys. It's like when you look at human history, we've been enslaving each other forever. Yeah. Like it's like probably the defining feature of human history is war and slavery. And so why would we think that today we've somehow thrown thrown off the yoke of that? I mean, yeah. we're still living in it. It's just a different different format or a different implementation of it, perhaps. I feel like the conversation itself that we see splashed across headlines is another version of bread and circus, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Let's all focus on the slavery of the past. Mm-hmm. Let's still argue about that slavery mm-hmm. instead of have the conversation Talking about, about the tax modern bills. slavery. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's find a way to get people fighting for, you know, re, re, remuneration or recompense reparations. Yeah, reparations yeah. about something that happened, you know, in the past yeah. because that's going to satisfy them today. Yes. And then 10 years from now, we'll have them focused on the outrage that they have from today. Yes. Right? And that's they do that to all of us. It's a it's a common thread because you always want to there's a specific demographic that you want to distract. And that demographic is the highest income earning, most productive demographic. What is that demographic? You're 35 to 50 year old, career, educated, productive professional, right? Male or female. Right. And the nice thing is in in those age frames from 35 to 50, guess what we're doing to ourselves? Having kids, building businesses, getting married. Those are massive distractions in your life that keep you away from caring about current events or keep you out of politics or keep you away from the voting polls. Mm -hmm. So when they add on top of that, you know, news stories and headlines and social issues that just infuriate you, but you can't do anything about them. Yeah. It just continues to aggravate. It's a strategy that we call at CIA. It's a strategy that we use in, uh, in covert influence campaigns. You are influencing a body of people to create almost like user generated content Mm -hmm. That feeds into a cycle of distracting them further. Yes. Wow. So interesting. Are we had a lot of interesting discussions in Miami, and one of the, you know, we're always trying to get to the bottom of things, and so every now and then it seems like we stumble across an answer that really makes a lot of sense in framing the bigger picture. And one of these perspectives was reached recently, and I I just want to share it with you and get your feedback. That human history seems to be one psyop after another intended to justify the stealing of your stuff, basically. So for instance, you had Marxism, which was from each according to their ability to each according to their need, right? This very utopian brotherhood sounding um, ideal that of course led to its precise opposite which was a state with absolute power, you know, stealing from everyone, starvation, hundreds of millions murdered, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another way I've heard this put, I think was by, by Eric Weinstein, he said, the idealism of every age is the cover story for its greatest theft. So today, one of the idealisms that's floating currently in the world is climate change, right? The unlimited climate change blank check to just print any amount of money. I think the last, what I saw the number, the estimates were like, they wanted to print a hundred trillion dollars, which is to double the global money supply over the next 50 years to fight climate change. And so again, you have this idealism of, oh, there's this infinite boogeyman called the weather and we're just going to need to steal more from you to fix the weather. Um, 
what's wrong with people? Why do we keep fabricating these giant convoluted narratives in in an attempt to justify our stealing of other people's shit? Like, can we just stop the lying and the stealing? Like, is is there a way out of this, or are we? Is this just a human condition situation? So I think your question is right on target, right? It is a human condition. And and the human condition is that humans uh, humans have been empirically shown to overvalue losses and undervalue gains. Mm, yes. So because of that, we're always focusing the majority of our energy and our attention towards the future loss that awaits us. Mm-hmm. And we're not crediting ourselves the current gains that we have. So when you create this culture that's always worried about what they don't have or worried about what they have that they will lose, they never start to think of what's happening right now, Mm -hmm. right? A big part of the reason we even have a mindfulness, self, uh, self care culture that exists at all is because people started waking up about 15 years ago to this idea that we're all future focused. We're future focused or past focused, but not present focused. Mm-hmm. That's a human condition because our society has evolved faster than we have biologically evolved. Mm. So you and I are still very close to the mm-hmm. cavemen yeah. that are, you know, that 12 generations ago we were, right? Where they were just worried about how am I going to eat today? How am I going to stay warm tonight? How are we going to stay dry tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Biologically, we're very so still very close to that person. Yes. Socially, we've evolved way past that. So how do we live in a world where we are still wired to worry about survive and not even think about how do we thrive? Yes. Right? And that's what really makes the people who can switch from survive to thrive faster are the people who succeed more. The people who are trapped in that survival mindset are the people who are delayed for longer. So you're right. The ideological uh, overlay that allows thrive-based people to come in and essentially take advantage of survive-based people, that is also human nature. Yeah. Because everybody who's taking is worried about, what if I don't get enough? What right. about my future? What if it's not taken care of? Right. So they they see their target as the, the uninitiated. Yeah. We call them trained and untrained at CIA. Uh. There are trained people and there are untrained people. So when we operate, guess who we operate against? Untrained people. Yeah. Because to go up head to head against the trained person, just think about a it's if you're ROI. Yeah, what's yeah. the ROI? Yeah, you're not going to try to mug some dude who you know is a jujitsu fighter. You're going right. to try to mug some dude whose face is buried in his phone, who's probably looks like he's never been to a gym in his life. Right. It's just a, it's a matter of survival, but it's also a matter of ROI. Yes. Right. So if somebody's going to let themselves be stolen from, there's always going to be somebody who steals from them. That's right. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of a bleak thing right it's like if if human beings are just economically opportunistic and if the power if there is a powerful someone in a position of power and someone in a position of weakness the power powerful tends to prey on the weak why do we jump on a sale at a grocery store yeah right right why do we jump on a discount right because we see that as an opportunity yeah and in that opportunity what we subconsciously realize is we have a chance to gain unfairly mm-hmm. and we don't even think about the fact that the organization that's losing it yeah is losing profit or margin or, or whatever else right they've they've got a sale that's my opportunity mm-hmm. we don't think about the fact that that's their loss of potential profit margin yeah man it's it is a very pernicious problem because 
to get people to shift from the survive mindset into the thrive mindset often necessitates like some stable, peaceful conditions, right? The private property, for instance, like if you can't keep what you earn, how can you ever get out of survive and into thrive mindset? Right. So it's not just a matter of people doing inner cognitive work. It's also people responding to the conditions of their environment. Right. And so it's pernicious in the sense that you can't get people to stop preying on people. The people that are getting preyed on are kind of suppressed into that survive mindset, never allowed to enter the thrive mindset. Even if they're the ones suppressing themselves. Yeah. I would also say though, and again, this is the dickhead side of me coming out. I kind of like it the way it is. Hmm. Because you know what would happen if everybody thrived? It would be a lot harder for me to thrive. Mm. So I like when people choose willful ignorance. Mm. I like when people choose to be lazy. I like when people choose not to try. It's better for me. Right. Right? Does that mean that I'm preying on others? I don't really care. Mm. Right? Like, I'm here to, def to create an opportunity set mm -hmm. for myself and my family. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lose the opportunity or that opportunity set by helping some stranger across the street just because somebody told me I have a moral obligation to do so. Right, right, right. If anything, it motivates me to work harder, produce something that's even higher quality, something that's even better, yeah. right? Be even more ethically upstanding, be even more engaged in politics, be even more engaged in social justice mm -hmm. because I want to shape it. And if yeah. there's 5,000 people out there that don't want to participate, that's cool. They can fund the thing that I'm shaping. Yeah, that makes sense. Like in a very Darwinian, <laughs> dark kind of way. Well, it's not <laughs> dark though, and I don't. I'm. I think Darwinism is what it is, and like we have to accept it and operate within its its purview. But there is there. In, I also have the inner idealist, which is like, well, can we do better? Right? We're not just animals. Like we're part animal and part rational, human, civilized, divine, whatever you want to call it. And I wonder if. It is, if it is just economics at the end of the day, that by making the weak more difficult to prey upon, right? Again, I'm thinking about Bitcoin. It's like if you have weak people holding their savings in Bitcoin, that just makes them harder to prey upon. You can't inflate it. You can't tax it. They can move it easily. They can conceal it easily. Um, does that change this recurrent human dynamic to just constantly have the powerful preying on the weak. Because what that does is all, in each of us following our own relative interests, we're actually shortchanging our absolute potential. Mm -hmm. Because if we did have a world where everyone thrived, so to speak, I mean, obviously this is a generalization, we would all be better off, right? Because everyone would be doing what they want to do. You know, their passion would be aligned with their profession so that everything that we enjoyed would be from the guy that was passionate about making chairs and passionate about making shoes and socks. So we'd get this increase in the variety and quality of goods and services that would benefit everyone. But we cannot realize that future if we keep just preying upon one another over and over and over again. So, But maybe there's a technological solution in things like Bitcoin to push us out of that that dynamic. For sure, I think that what Bitcoin does is it changes the... Uh, the spectrum mm -hmm. of the diff of what defines weak people, mm. right? Because you got to remember, we we talk about the powerful and the weak as if it's a dichotomy. Sure, it's not. It's a continuum. It's a continuum. There's a middle point at which point you are more strong than you are weak, or more weak than you are strong. But there's still a continuum. So the individual who has their money secured 
in a fund that nobody else can touch but them because it's in a wallet with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. That is not the same level of weakness mm -hmm. as a person who is 100% tied to an employer who puts money mm -hmm. into their you know, PNC bank account mm -hmm. or their Capital One bank account. That can be frozen at the touch of a button. Correct. Yeah. Right. So even though both people may have the same level of education, the same level of income, the same level of you know, world trauma or life trauma. Mm. They might be equal in all other ways, but just by having your money outside of the reach of the federal mm. government, you are not as weak as the other person. Right. Right. And then on the other side of the spectrum, on the powerful side of the spectrum, I have multiple ultra high net worth clients. Guess what they're all invested in? Bitcoin. Mm. Every one of them. Mm. Now, some of them invest more mm -hmm. because they believe in the technology. Some of them invest less because they are completely unfamiliar with the technology, right. but they still want to have the opportunity to see it grow. Yes. But like when it comes to wealthy people, the, the metrics on Bitcoin are astounding when it comes to the concentration of, of total Bitcoins owned mm -hmm. by wealth and income bracket, mm -hmm. right? Because so much is owned by wealthy people. Mm -hmm. And, and the part the the amount that's owned by your average person, right, is a is a different a different saturation level mm -hmm. in terms of quantity of bitcoins versus percentage of total buyers. And I think that really speaks to the buying power mm -hmm. of the wealthy. Yeah. They know they can buy in large amounts. That's why we call them market movers. Yeah. They can change the entire direction of a market. Yeah. So it's really fascinating when you see how that technology has been adapted or how it's been adopted yeah. by people who are already traditionally seen as strong versus weak. Right. The strong lean into it, take the sure. risk and invest in it. And guess who the, the future strong, the future powerful will be today's weak who adopt the same methodology. Right. right, right, right. Yeah, that's a great point that even in Bitcoin with all of its, um, let's say, beneficial aspects for human beings, right? Like giving us greater freedom, autonomy, et cetera, there's still a Darwinian process playing out. Like this, whoever can get it is going to get it and the people that get it first are going to have the most in the long run. Um, yeah, you're definitely seeing that play out. But if anything, it's there's a lot of people want to want to wage a moral argument against that and say, well, that's a problem. And it's like, well, I, the way I try to say it is like, look, the train is moving. Yeah. Uh, you can argue about the train and complain about the train. Stand in front of the train. And you can do whatever you want. You can moralize it. <laughs> But it's moving. Yeah. And it's like you either get on or you get off. Or if you try to stand in front of it, you're going to get run over. It's like there's not the moralizing doesn't do anything. Right. Like you can say it's not fair. Bitcoin's distribution is not fair. Well, neither is the US dollar distribution. Neither is the gold distribution. Neither is anything. <laughs> like nothing's fair ultimately. But we're in Bitcoin. We at least have something close to that ideal of a level playing field because it's rules that no one can change or bend or break. And that's something humans have never had before. So it seems really useful. And everybody has the choice. Yeah. You have the choice to get on the train, watch the train, yeah. stand behind the train, right? You you have the choice. Yeah. I think what's really something that we cannot refute is that the, the rise and evolution of Bitcoin over time mm -hmm. has absolutely informed central banks to realize there is something about digital currency mm -hmm. that we need to take seriously. For sure. Right? We need to react and the only thing they're reacting to is the development of Bitcoin. Yes. Yeah. The CBDC is just a competitive response to Bitcoin without a doubt. Um, okay. I, we didn't get into the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Not yet. too much. No. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. What, what's going on with the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Like what is the, 
in, in your view of, there's a story we're told here in the West about what happened, right? Putin's a bad guy and he invaded Ukraine. I assume it's a little more complicated than that. Um, what What's the actual situation in this conflict and why is it so important to Russia? So it's, I mean, you're, you're asking all the right questions, man. The, the narrative that we've been told is that this is an unlawful war. What nobody's telling you is according to the rules and the laws of war, there is no lawful war. Sure. Our invasion of Afghanistan was unlawful. Right. Right. Our invasion of Kuwait was unlawful. Like it, war is not a lawful thing. Yes. So you got to take that argument off the table. It, it wasn't an unlawful invasion of Ukraine any more than any other war has ever been unlawful. What we have to recognize is that there's, it's not a conflict that's equal on both sides, right? Ukraine was a burgeoning, like a, a, a democracy in progress. If you look at how it was rated by Amnesty International and, and think tanks out there, it gets a, a 60%, a six out of 10 in terms of its democratic functionality mm-hmm. prior to the invasion on, on February 24th. So when you consider the fact that it wasn't really a democracy, it was a transitioning democracy, a, a burgeoning democracy. That means the rest of it was not a democracy. It was a corrupt, defunct government. Mm-hmm. A big part of the reason that so much money, so much material, so many weapons have had to be sent to Ukraine to break even, mm-hmm. right, where they are right now, is a sign of that corruption. Mm-hmm. A lot of those materials, weapons, medicines have all been stolen resold, repackaged, and used for corrupt purposes by Ukrainians, hmm. right? It was, it's not been a clean, you know, unified war. That's what we've been told, but that's not actually what it's been on the field. And when you talk to the, the consultants, the contractors, the nonprofits that have actually been there and served there, they'll all tell you the truth. They'll tell you like, it's not, it's not what we're told, yeah. but the American people and, and the, the engine of donation needs to be primed, right? We have seen that interest and that passion wane over the last year, year and two months, right? We've seen it happen. And that's the game that Putin is really playing. Uh. He knows that Ukraine is an existential threat to Russia. Mm-hmm. Losing Ukraine is the end of Russia. Because it's a point of invasion? Is that right? Because Russia is a is a energy state. Yeah. It makes its money off of exporting energy. When you look at a map of how energy flows out of Russia and into Europe, its primary buyer, those pipelines, the vast majority of them come to a connection in the Donbass region, Mm. underground. Mm -hmm. And then from there, they're transferred to the rest of Europe. Gotcha. So Ukraine can't be outside of the Russian sphere of influence or else Russia essentially becomes dependent on whoever controls Ukraine. Because it's revenues. Yeah. Right. It's an economic war. And Russia doesn't have natural resources otherwise. It's not like they have anything they can use to make international trade definitely not be a global power competitor like they used to be. Mm. So losing Ukraine is a massive issue for them. That's separate from the encroachment of NATO. That's separate from the the growing impa- influence of the West coming up against the Russians, right? Those are all things that we've been told. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody's making the very basic, very fundamental like com- com- talking point for us right. Americans like, hey, if if Russia loses power over Ukraine, Russia is leveraged. Right. They're at the behest of whoever controls Ukraine. So Putin can't lose that. Do you remember when we were told that Putin had like brain cancer or when we were told that he was going to be like taken down from the inside? We've heard the most amazing, ridiculous theories over the last 16 or so months about how Russia hates Putin. And yet here we are. Yeah. 
right? With a with the Ukrainians and the world expecting this massive counteroffensive that Ukraine's going to launch against Russia. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Russia's doubling down. And if anything, right, this this month, Russia is back up to pre-production levels, pre-war production levels of oil and exports. Mm. So the the ruble is up, or yeah. the Russian ruble is up. They're back to pre-war exports of their oil, which means right. there are buyers buying their oil yeah. in the face of record sanctions. Right. Russia's not losing. They're not losing. They're not weak. They're not anything that we're being told they are. Yeah. They may be struggling. They may be, you know, scrappy. They may be resourceful, but guess who else is all those things? Ukraine. Yeah. But for some reason, the story we're being told about Ukraine is how resourceful and brave they are. Yeah. And what we're being told about Russia is how weak and flimsy they are. Wow. It's just not a complete story. It's, yeah, it's amazing that we never get that simple truth that all these, all wars, all armed conflict is ultimately economic, right? It's, it's driven by the economics of the situation. You never get that in the narrative, right? We always get this ideological bullshit of here's the good guys, here's the bad guys. But it, it really is quite that simple, right? The, right? the Russia is a business. It's a giant monopoly on violence that exports a lot of energy. And if Ukraine is a bottleneck and therefore a single point of failure for the exportation of that energy, then the monopoly on violence is going to rise to defend or conquer, control, whatever you want to say, uh, that channel for exporting their primary export. It's a mirror image of what we were just talking about with China and Taiwan. Yeah, right? right. The U.S. is so invested in the semiconductor manufacturing capability of Taiwan. Yes. We can't lose it. Russia is so leveraged by the energy that flows through Ukraine yeah. that they can't lose it, right? They're mere images, they're mere images of each yeah. other, and that's why we're watching. That's why so many people are interested in China, because guess who has no dog in either fight, right? China. Right. So China gets to just observe. Huh. What's the world doing in Ukraine? Because there's a good likelihood that that's what the world will do right? Against when China moves against Taiwan. So when the West froze $630 billion- What do the Chinese do? Russian foreign exchange reserves, the Chinese are paying attention. Yeah, the Chinese moved their money. Yeah. Right? Within weeks, within, I think it was within 10 days of the Russian assets being frozen, which was illegal and unlawful. Sure. Right? Once that happened, the Chinese moved all their money out of Western banks, out out of banks controlled by Western sanctions. Yes. Right? They're learning. They're watching and they're learning from our playbook. Right? It's a fascinating thing to see. And uh, the other thing that's really important about what's happening in Ukraine, the story that we're not being told, is that part, to your point about wars are economic, if wars are economic and we're seeing the West is fading in their commitment to supporting Ukraine, why is that? Because they're not seeing the ROI. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Why are you seeing France, a NATO powerhouse, flying to China? Why are you seeing them openly deny uh, weapons to Ukraine? Why are you seeing the Germans pause on sending leopard tanks to Ukraine? Why are you seeing the British balk at sending more money? Why are you seeing the United States, the House and the Senate con- like conflicted over sending more money? Because people don't see the ROI anymore. Right. It, I- ideological wars only really work yes. in the newspaper. Yes. They don't really work in real life. So people are like, ah. And that's the bluff Putin called, right? He's like, fuck you. I got the energy. So yeah. print all the money you want run all the propaganda you want. Like we've got the energy you can't live without. 
and and he also knows he does he's doesn't have a choice. Yeah, he's very much in a wild animal trapped in a corner. Mm-hmm. He can't lose Ukraine on his watch. And you never want to fight someone backed into a corner. And the reason that he's still in power is because if somebody takes him out of power, then they're going to lose Ukraine on that guy's watch. Yeah, which is going to mean that guy's the end of the Russian dominant power. Like right. Putin's a per, is a perfect peg right now, and he knows he is because he either wins and he becomes the hero of Russia, or Ukraine is lost and Russia dies anyway. So Ukraine. So what does Putin care? Wow. Right. He's got nothing. Nothing here to lose and everything to gain. Yeah, I, you know, I dated a, a Russian girl for a little while, and she told me that it's divided inside of Russia. That basically a lot of people hate him, mm-hmm. a lot of people love him. Sounded like a Trump type figure here <laughs> in the U.S. Um, ama- just yeah, amazing how quickly this all came about. You know, the the really interesting thing to me too is that a, a part when you mix together both conflicts, when you mix together and you consider what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in Taiwan right? The world is going through a supply chain crisis. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things that it's hard to get through the supply chain is semiconductors. So Ukraine has been fighting a war using Western weapons donated by Western countries, but the weapons that they've been donated are not being resupplied because the semiconductors that are needed to create those next generation of weapons are tied up in a supply chain. Wow. So we're sending weapons UK sending weapons, France, Germany, Poland, everybody's sending weapons that they're not restocking Mm. or they're restocking at a rate that's slower than what they're sending. So we're depleting our own ability to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, China controls a supply chain for most of those semiconductors. So when you do the calculation about what will a future conflict with China look like, will it happen or won't it happen? It's well known inside the US government. It's not a secret. It's just not publicly disclosed often that there is a supply chain shortage of advanced weapons. We've given them all away. We're not resupplying them. We're not remaking them at a rate that is enough to defend the homeland. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do we keep sending these weapons to Ukraine? Or do we keep some of these in reserve because we are actually going through a supply chain shortage that's indicative of what we're afraid of having happen if TSMC, if Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing capability goes under Chinese control. Wow. It's a lot to take in. Um, what are we... Okay, so all of this going on in the world, the cost, of course, is being borne by the taxpayer, as it always is. Um, what can like the average person do to prepare themselves for the challenges or... Um, I mean, I guess the potential shortages of food or lack of safety... Uh, supply chain disruptions. Are there things like practical, practical things people can be thinking about or doing to, to prepare themselves and protect themselves from whatever uncertainty is on the horizon? Yeah. The, it, everything that we need to be thinking about when it comes to protecting ourselves is really tied up with assets. Mm-hmm. Cause if you recall, we started this conversation talking about how money mm-hmm. is opportunity. Mm-hmm. So if you want to have opportunity a year from now, 18 months from now, two years from now, when stuff just gets worse, right? When conflict between the US and China gets even closer to the brink of armed conflict, when we're going through the transition of another nasty presidential race, when Ukraine is being decided one way or the other, not to mention like whatever happens everywhere else in the world, right? Like Sudan is on fire right now. Uh, You've got conflict all over the Congo right now. You've got issues in Thailand right now. Like the whole world is having issues. 
we're just having issues also. So if you want to protect yourself and give yourself opportunities, you really need to be looking at your asset pool. If you own a business, your business is an asset. Find a way to fine tune your business so it's generating more revenue. Reduce your costs, maximize your revenue, keep your profits in the in the actual bank account for the business, mm. reinvest it to make more money, find that positive ROI. Mm. Get yourself out of the system of slavery that we've been talking about where you're dependent on someone else giving you money. Mm. If you're already trapped in that system mm -hmm. where you are working for a paycheck because you're a, a wage laborer or whatever else, you have assets that you need to protect some other way. Whether that means you're putting cash in between your mattresses or whether that means you're investing in Bitcoin mm -hmm. or some other cryptocurrency, find a way to protect your asset because it is the only thing you have right now. Mm. Where we're going, we're on the brink of, of loan default, right? If that happens, social security takes a drop, unemployment spikes, people get laid off, paychecks dry up. What are you going to do then, right? If you are going to spend your money, don't invest your money into garbage, which, which is what the consumer mindset wants you to invest in. Buy a new iPhone, buy another pair of shoes, buy a designer jacket. Don't buy garbage. Right now, if you need, if you need to spend an asset, spend an asset doing something that will bring you some kind of return, mm. right? Learn how to protect your money. Learn how to protect your family. Mm -hmm. I have a company that teaches people how to protect their family, how to protect their business, how to protect themselves. I mean, you're going to be better off spending $27 with me than spending $27 on a new pair of shoes, right? Mm -hmm. People are going to be better off investing their money into some kind of protected cryptocurrency that's outside of the reach of the central bank than they're going to be putting money into another mutual fund, Yeah, right? That's, that's tied to an irresponsible banking system that may very well go default, right? Even treasuries, this is what's crazy, treasury insurance, which is unheard of, mm -hmm. is at an all-time high right now. People are buying insurance to insure the five-year yield on their government bond. Which is people don't be... trust that the bond will actually right, right, which is supposed to be the counterparty that never fails. Yes, it's insane. Like The way the world is going right now, you've got to look at your assets and realize they are your assets and they are limited. Yeah. That is the true law of economics, yeah. right? Economics is based on the law of scarcity. Mm. There is always a limited amount. Mm -hmm. There is never an unlimited amount. We've been talking all day about economics, the power of economics, the undeniable truth of economics. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're talking about right now. Your assets are scarce and you are the only one who wants to protect them. Everybody else yeah. wants to take them. Yeah. And so under those conditions, you also want assets that you can fully control, right? Again, bank accounts, well, we take them for granted because they tend to work here in the West. But if you ask the protesters in the Canadian truck convoy, yeah. like, well, those didn't work. Um, Anybody who's was had money tied up with the three banks that just failed? Exactly. Exactly. Bank failures, um, index funds, mutual funds, all of these things, they, they're counterparty laden. So if things do get really bad, you can't necessarily depend on those things to materialize. Um, so yeah, in those extreme conditions that we hopefully don't get into, but we have many, many times across human history. So I don't want to discount the possibility. You need assets you can fully control, right? Physical gold, physical Bitcoin, guns, currency, food, energy, tools, et cetera. Do you know who's not worried about the future? The wealthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not even that, I don't even fall under the level of wealth that my clients fall under. Mm -hmm. And I'm not worried about the future. Mm -hmm. Like, that's because you've invested so much in yourself. Exactly. And you have too. I, I have a feeling you don't lose sleep 
worrying about your assets in the future because you know how they work and you can- Well, no, thank God for Bitcoin. I'm willing to- <laughs> but that's the thing that's so wild to me is like money buys you opportunity. And when I talk to when I talk to the ultra high net worth clients that I work with, when I talk to senior executives in, in Fortune 10 companies, they're eager for the future mm -hmm. because they see the opportunity. Right. They see the opportunity that comes from chaos, collapse, yeah. Yeah. panic, fear. Yeah. They see it. They see it. They know everybody else is going to panic. Human human behavior is predictable and the strong prey on the weak. Yeah. I forgot who said that the best time to invest is when there's blood in the streets. <laughs> Brutal, but probably true. Um, what do you, okay, so obviously protecting assets, protecting money, very important to protect your opportunity as we go into this uncertain world. Speaking of money, like to what extent do you think, a theme we explore on the show a lot is the connection between money and mind. Mm. Like we're often thinking through money when we calculate a price or negotiate a deal or we perform any type of economic planning, you know, we're thinking about going on a vacation or buying a business, whatever it may be. There seems to be this connection between money and our mind, like it's an extension of the human mind in a way, uh, particularly through the pricing system. To what extent do you think government monopolization and control over money is used as a proxy for manipulating and controlling the minds of individuals? So when it comes to considering matters of state, one of the things that I often encourage people to think through is something called uh, Hanlon's Razor. Mm. You've heard of Occam's Razor, mm. right? So Hanlon's Razor says, never subscribe to conspiracy, that which can be explained through idiocy. Mm. Okay. Right? It's kind of an Occam's Razor in and of itself, right? Yeah. So don't give credit to a complicated conspiracy if it's easier to give credit to someone just being stupid. Incompetence. Right, incompetence. Yeah. And the government, the federal government especially, is as much as we all love to be Americans, we've seen the incompetence of government. Mm -hmm. It's It lends itself to incompetence. It's a perfect example of how a few very competent people manage a larger pool of incompetent people. So I don't believe that the government is organized or efficient enough to actually be able to manipulate the thinking patterns of people. Mm. Not when I compare that instead to the fact that they're thinking very stupidly. Mm. They're thinking, we need to put more money into the economy. How do we put more money into the economy if people don't generate more money? We extend them lines of credit. We make it easier for them to borrow. We print more money, mm -hmm. right? Nobody's thinking five years down the road because no one's going to be in office for more than four right. years down there. Broken right. incentives. Exactly. So it's like, we just need to make people happy now mm. so that they'll vote Republican or vote Democrat right. again for the next election cycle. So nobody's making the, nobody's invested long-term. Nobody's got skin in the game. Yeah. Po professional politicians, yeah. the thing they're working for is their political career. Right. Not the improvement of the American people. Right. That's, again, the reason that rich landowners founded this country on the idea that politicians would be professionals mm -hmm. that stepped out of their career and sacrificed as public servants for mm -hmm. a short period. Their vision was never what we have now, mm -hmm. right? Trump was the closest thing that the world, that the United States has ever seen to what they actually wanted the president to look like. Mm -hmm. A career professional who stepped out to become a political yeah. servant, right? And he wasn't a great fit either, yeah. but that was that's how it's supposed to be. So yeah, I, I don't think that it's... I understand the concern, the conspiracy behind it, but just logically speaking, it's more likely 
that they're just not thinking things through. They're just trying to stimulate an economy in any way that they can because they know that anything they break today, someone else has to clean up later. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, we often consider incentives kind of be the ground stuffs of human action, right? Like, what's the old saying that no man is better than his incentives? So we all are constantly responding to incentives. And so when you when you frame politi- politics that way, right, that they just have very short-term incentives. So they're willing to do whatever is necessary to get elected in this current cycle and defer all the costs and hide all the the cost and to on to the next guy, basically. It creates these conditions of incompetence, basically. And then perhaps us as citizens, we're observing that thinking, oh, there's some big conspiracy theory out there to make all this terrible, all these terrible things that are happening. But the reality is the incentives are just broken and we're observing the manifestation of discordant human action inside of an incentive system that's not properly structured. Right. We're taught at the agency that there's a recipe for conspiracies, Mm -hmm. right? That the whole, when conspiracy theories are, are born, there's a very predictable process that leads to them, Mm. right? And that process has four steps. The first step is there has to be something factual. Mm -hmm. Something actually has to happen. Some fact. The second step is that in the tail of that fact, there's a gap of information, something that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And then the third step is we, in the face of that unknown information, we become suspicious, Mm -hmm. right? We become skeptical. Now, is suspicion a bad thing? No. There's healthy suspicion. Suspicion is what keeps us alive. Suspicion is supposed to work for us. Mm -hmm. But when you're following this step-by-step process of of where a conspiracy theory comes from, what we become suspicious of is not the missing information. We become suspicious of why the information is missing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So fact-based events, missing information, healthy suspicion, then it leads to this inherent flaw in the human brain where we have to close thought loops. Right. So when we don't have the information we need to close our loop, Mm. we create a store. We fill the void. And especially with conspiracy theories, somebody, the first person to create a story that closes the loop, that becomes the story that other people adopt. Mm. Because it's easier to adopt an existing story than it is to come up with your own critical story. Right. Right. Your own critical thinking. So that process is what leads to conspiracy theories. That's why some conspiracy theories turn out to be true. Yeah, because it all they're a very set pattern of, of of events, and it just so happens that sometimes the story is accurate for the missing information. Right, but in plenty of cases, it's not. Yeah, but that's where these things persist, and they fit very well into human the human condition because we want a closed loop. We want everything to be packaged very nicely yes. so that we can start a conversation right. over a glass of wine and finish the conversation yeah. over a glass of wine. We don't want to walk away from the table with no answers. Yeah. Man, I heard a great interview, I think it was Rick Rubin on the the Huberman podcast, and he was articulating a similar point. It was like, as humans, we're always dealing with incomplete information, like radically incomplete. We just see one thing happen through our five senses, and we see another thing happen through our five senses, and then we close the gap with story. It's like we have, you know... 0.1% of the total information and then we just fill in the gap with some narrative. And we need to do that. Like we need to be able to deal with the complexities of the world. Um, but it definitely seems to open us up to deception, either yeah. either by others or even by ourselves, self-deception. Um, 
are there conspiracy theories? Maybe we'll just go through a few and see if you subscribe to them or not. <laughs> um, I mentioned one to you offline that that a friend, I guess I won't name him, just a friend shared with me recently in Miami that he, he was operating under the assumption that nuclear weapons were actually much less devastating than we've been led to believe. Um, and I think you had some views on that. Yeah, I, I don't know where that is coming from. Mm -hmm. um, so I worked with nuclear weapons. I was a nuclear missile officer for the Air Force until 2007 when I was recruited by CIA. Mm. So I'll be the first one to admit that the information I have is, you know, just under 20 years old. Mm -hmm. But when I was in charge of nuclear weapons, they were 100% as devastating mm. as they had been promised to be. If anything, we had found a way to make their devastation even more efficient, mm. right? Concentrate the fireball, mm. change the altitude of the, of the, of the detonation, mm. uh, increase the number of warheads that are on a single delivery vehicle, mm. right? Like they're every bit as devastating as you expect them to be. We've just been spoiled because yeah. we haven't been testing them since the 1950s, I think. Yeah. So because we created a treaty where we do not demonstrate the effectiveness of our nuclear weapons anymore, we essentially have two generations of people who have been born and have never actually seen a detonated wow. nuclear device. So the devastation of those is confirmed through... If we're not seeing it, what is it? How do you confirm this? So there's a couple of different ways, right? So... Uh, it's usually done through mathematical models. Okay. So when they, when an engineer or when a, when a, a nuclear, uh, weapons technician creates a weapon, they know what level of purity their uranium is or their plutonium is. They know the size of that plutonium. They know the, the charge, the shape of the charge. They know the detonating device. You know, they know everything about the weapon and they can use those to program into models, how that weapon will perform based off of what they know about mathematical models previously proven true through our testing process. Gotcha. And that's how we do it here in the US. Russia does it very similarly. Russia, uh, China does it very similarly. But then you also have the events in, uh, in North Korea and sometimes in China as well, where they, they still detonate underground. Yeah. The treaty said that we would not detonate above ground. Oh, okay. So we've absolutely seen in our lifetime detonations happen in underground mm. testing facilities, right? What about the moon landing? In the 60s. Is that, did that actually happen or is that a conspiracy? I, I, I believe that is a, a empty conspiracy, right? Okay. Because were there some, uh, are there some strange, uh, almost unbelievable things that we were able to do in the 1960s? Yeah, there are. Yeah. But we also know that we continue to explore space from that time forward. So either we happened to coordinate this perfect conspiracy and then just in time, we developed the real technology to send people into space and send satellites into space and start capturing pictures on the Hubble telescope, et cetera, et cetera. Or we actually did land on the moon. Hmm. Um, I also, it's just it's very interesting to me, especially when I hear conspiracies like liquid space or flat earth conspiracies. I've never heard of liquid space. Yeah, there, there is a conspiracy out there that space is not a vacuum, that space is actually a liquid and that we've been lied to because nobody's been to space because they know if they went to space, they would drown, hmm. right? So there's okay. there's some strange, interesting ideas out there, but but it all falls into that same recipe that we were talking about, right? There's a gap of information. Yeah. It's, whether that gap of information is something that the government has kept from you, or whether that gap of information is something where you the information that's been given to you, you just don't accept, 
right? And I feel like the space landing is a very good example of, there's plenty of proof out there that we landed it in space, mm. right? There's moon rocks, there's, there's footprints that have been taken in images from satellites. Like there's mm. independent corroborative pieces of proof that have either all been constructed in a great grand conspiracy, mm-hmm. which according to Hanlon's razor doesn't happen, mm-hmm. or they actually happened and you're just rejecting the proof of what you've seen. Hmm. Right, nine uh, eleven, and what was it? Building seven. Yeah. Right. Was gonna be. Or even the cause of nine eleven being self-imposed. Right. Like these are conspiracies that I absolutely understand why they exist because they fit the recipe. Yeah. But the preponderance of evidence just doesn't hold up to Hanlon's razor. What about building seven though? It was so, six blocks away from the destruction, wasn't hit, and then it went down like controlled demolition. What, yeah. What's up with that? I have no idea. I don't know the answers. Uh, I don't know the answers. Um. I don't know the answers and what I've heard of some of the conspiracies uh, involve CIA hidden buildings and or hidden offices. And I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. Um, I was part of operations that were heavily compartmented. Yeah. So if there was a CIA office in building seven, it was heavily compartmented. Yeah. So it's not the kind of thing that is going to be available information for anyone to get. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't know the answer, but I also don't necessarily believe that the conspiracy is correct. Yeah. Is there some strange mystery around it? For me, yes. Yeah. Is that mystery worth my time, effort, energy, and money? Yeah, it definitely feels like we are wired to, like you said, we want to close the loop, I guess, is that feeling. It's like, well, what the, did happen? And we there, it leaves that feeling of drawing in your attention. Um, I am, I guess I will admit, I'm a bit skeptical on the moon landing <laughs> in that I saw the one video of the American flag actually waving on the moon and that just, it's like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. The moon has no atmosphere. There's no wind. Why is the flag waving? Did we put some mechanics in the flag to make it look like it's waving or something? I don't know. That threw me for a bit of a loop with the moon landing. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, when I think about the fact that we sense, I mean, I agree with you. A flag waving in space doesn't make a lot of sense. Unless it's liquid, I guess. <laughs> but neither does the idea that we went from nothing to sending three men in a shuttle, like in a in a capsule to the moon and back again where they walked on the surface. Like, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. A little bit of flitter and a flag. Yes, that's weird. What the fuck? Nobody's questioning like how insanely... How, how much insane progress was made during the space race? Well, why haven't we done it since? Why it's it's almost like we could never do it. Then all of a sudden we did it, and then all of a sudden we never did it again. It's like well, that's strange. Usually when humans start doing something, we keep doing it, right? Well, I would argue that we have done like we've sent more people into space, but not to the moon, right? Well, there's there's no economic benefit in the moon, mm. right? Like the economic benefit of sending people to the moon was essentially a benefit of winning the space race. It was just a flex, and then we were done flexing. Correct. Because there's nothing to mine on the moon. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the first astronaut in space to spacewalk was a cosmonaut. Mm-hmm. So the Russians beat us to yeah. that. Yeah. The Russians beat us to getting a satellite in space. Yeah. Sputnik beat any American yeah. satellite, right? Well, after they launched a satellite, they didn't launch another one right away. Mm-hmm. They moved on to the next challenge. Yeah. Once they had a cosmonaut do a spacewalk, they moved on to the next challenge. Yeah. Right? Look at Red Bull. Red Bull's a fantastic example of this. They do some crazy ass shit, mm-hmm. right? A dude jumps off of one airplane and lands in another airplane or whatever else it might be, right? They do this crazy stuff, but they don't do it again, yeah, right? Because the profitability of it was just in doing it the first time. Right. Then they're on to the next thing Got to it. prove that they can keep pushing 
the boundaries. So it's a spectacle initially. And then once you've done it, it's kind of a... That's where the profitability comes from. Yeah. That's where the ROI is. Right. America is more powerful than Russia because we landed on the moon first. Just to flex. And then Russia gave it up once we did it because we won. I mean, yeah. Well, because they, they lost, put anyone on they the had lost a space race. Uh, that's a good question. I actually don't know if after cosmonauts. I don't know if they did. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Is, okay, this might tie into something we were talking about offline too, which was this idea that enemies learn from one another all the time, right? Like whatever strategy is being employed against you in war or in business or any conflictual environment, you're adapting to that strategy that's being imposed upon you. And you're very likely to probably use that against that enemy or other enemies in the future. And this is uh, this could tie into um, Rene Girard's work on mimesis, where he talks about humans always imitating one another and we're doing it at different levels, perhaps. What happens, though, when you stop learning from your enemy? Um, I think you gave the example of uh, the United States, right? As a, as a global superpower, it gets kind of in a position of, I guess, sitting on its high horse, thinking it doesn't need to uh, adapt and respond to these changes as much because it presumably controls the environment. What are the, I guess, is that accurate to say that enemies are emulating one another? And then what are the dangers of failing to do that? Yeah, it's, this is another great place, I think, for sports analogies, Mm. right? What do competing football teams in high school do? They watch the tape of their upcoming match, like whoever they're playing against, they watch their tape from the previous week. In detail over and over again. Yes. To learn the, and then they create plays that counter the plays that they know and they yes. see in the tape, yes. right? So the idea of learning from your enemy is not new to us. Yeah, uh, We've been doing it for a long time. If you, if you look at how the Spartans developed weapons, how the yes. Greeks developed weapons, how the how Aborigines developed weapons, they developed weapons to counter the weapons that were being used against them, right? right? What did we do in the space race? What did we do in the nuclear race? Why are we constantly developing new weapons ourselves? What's happening in Ukraine, Yeah. right? In Ukraine, we're launching completely new types of weapons 
the Ukrainians are innovating new weapons to combat the weapons that are on the battlefield. And you're seeing how that wins, how that works, mm -hmm. right? So we are still learning from our enemies to a certain extent. We're The Ukraine war is a fantastic example of where the American DOD, the American military, gets to watch the Russian military kill Ukrainians mm -hmm. with American weapons mm -hmm. countering them. So we get to see how our weapons do in the field without risking American lives. Mm. And we get to see what Russian tactics are employed in the field without risking American lives. Mm. So there's a lot of net benefit to the United States supporting a conflict in Ukraine, mm. right? And we've got to remember that. We're not there because it's just ideological. There is an ROI, mm -hmm. but we don't want to talk about what that ROI is. Right. So we are to some extent learning, but then there's so many other places where we stop learning and we stop learning partially because of like... Shit, like pride arrogance arrogance yeah. because we think we're the best we don't need to learn about how you know brazil is handling sugar crops we don't mm -hmm. have to learn about this we don't have mm -hmm. we don't need to worry about you know what's happening with the election in taiwan or in thai thailand right now right we don't care it's beneath us so when something is beneath you and you don't even bother learning from it you lose the opportunity to learn. Mm. But then we also have this uh, this thing where we don't learn because we think it's against our ethics or our morals, mm. right? So a fantastic example here is terrorists. Terrorists thrived for a long time by creating cells, mm -hmm. terrorist cell networks mm -hmm. that were embedded in a local population and, and just didn't act. They were asleep, mm -hmm. right? Three, five, 12 years. They built a life in London or New mm -hmm. York or Boston, wherever, right? And then one day they were activated. Mm -hmm. To have a 12-year operation like that goes completely against anything we do in the United States mm -hmm. because we only have a five-year budget cycle. <laughs> so how could we possibly fund an operation for 12 years, yeah. right? And then we've got compartmentation. Yeah. So when we approve a long-term mission, it has to go through multiple offices that are all need-to-know offices for that operation. Yeah. And then you've got people who change positions, right? People who get right. promoted, fired, or, or moved to different offices. So now you can't control the secret. So you have China using long-term seeding operations against the United States. You got Russians planting illegals in the United States. You have all sorts of intelligence operations, influence operations, uh, uh, hacking operations that are being executed against us by our opponents that we look at the way they're doing it and we tell ourselves ideologically, well, that's immoral. So we're not going to adopt that practice, right? It's the the terrorism, uh, the the um, torture mm. argument is a fantastic example of right. Right? We call but, it enhanced interrogation, right? And when we're kidnapped by a terrorist organization, are we enhancedly interrogated? Yeah. No, we are straight up tortured, tortured. Right. And then we're killed. Yeah. So when we capture a terrorist, somehow now it's unethical for us to slap that person in the belly or deny them dinner? Mm -hmm. are, like, how are we going to reprimand the men and women that we've charged with protecting us? We're going to try and govern how they handle a terrorist. Mm -hmm. And we're going to ridicule them and end their careers and, and potentially put them in jail when the other side is not extending the same grace to us. All we're doing is losing an opportunity ourselves. Yeah. Right Now, to a certain extent, we get to claim in you know, 10 years down the road, well, we took the moral high ground and we are better for it. I would say we took the moral high ground and we have lost more lives for it. Yeah. So as long as you're willing to some, as long as some politician can stand up on a, on a pedestal and say, 
yeah, we killed 25 people being on the ethical high ground. We killed 25 Americans being on the ethical high ground and not torturing terrorists. But hey, guys, I'm really proud of us, right? I would much rather have that person stand up and be like, we tortured the hell out of some terrorists. We saved a lot of American lives. Yeah. Because I don't see all lives as equal. Right. American lives come first in my eyes. Okay. And if that makes me a bad person, that makes me a bad person. Oh, it makes you patriotic, I think, <laughs> at least. Um, are, is this just... Because as you're saying that, I'm reflecting on even when we tell stories in our personal lives, right? Was that saying that there's three sides to every story, his side, her side, and the truth? <laughs> that we're always, maybe even unconsciously, bending the story to suit our interest to some extent, right? Depending on who we're telling, when we're telling it, what the purpose of that conversation is. Like we're going to emphasize certain aspects of the event and de-emphasize others. Is this just part of like the human condition too, that we can't help but bend? Well, we have to tell stories as we've established. The story is never going to be a perfect representation of reality. So we're always just going to use that wiggle room to kind of bend it to our advantage, even if it's unconscious. What we're talking about here isn't really about uh, bending the truth. It's about the human need for connection, mm. right? We are a we are a tribal animal. Mm -hmm. We're a pack animal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, you're right that we are. Uh, we're more than just animals. We also have a spiritual element and mm -hmm. you know a philosophical element. But we are still some portion of animal. Mm -hmm. And without a community, without a pack, we know we will die. Mm -hmm. And that's why loneliness is such a problem for mm -hmm. for humans and especially for Americans, right? So when I choose to share a story with you or when you choose to share a story with me or we share a story with our audience, mm -hmm. we are inherently shaping the story to justify our actions so that we will be accepted because we want to be accepted into a community so that we belong to something. Mm -hmm. If we, that's the his side and her side, mm -hmm. right? His side is telling his story because he wants to be accepted by the other his's and he's listening, mm -hmm. right? Her, she's telling a story from her point of view so she can be accepted by all the other she's hearing mm -hmm. the story. And then you're right, there's the cold hard truth. What's really fascinating is that the truth is that just telling the truth will build a community on its own hmm. because that's what so few people get and what most people are looking for. Hmm. So what I really respect about what you're doing is that you are telling the truth as you know it, as you've studied it, as you've seen it, as you've practiced it, as you live it, hmm. right? That is the truth. It's not your slant. It's not your bias. If anything, your, your bookshelves are full of books that demonstrate your willingness to try to break yourself out of your personal bias. You are trying to create the truth because that's what you want. And then you're attracting people who want the truth along with you. I can, I can back someone like that all day long because there's enough people out there twisting the truth to try to glorify themselves. I appreciate you saying that. And I, I think I am trying to do that, but also running into my own limitations, like still finding myself, like not exactly saying it the way I meant to say it or and it's often when you're kind of caught off guard, mm -hmm. I found it's like, oh, someone asks you a thing, you like say it real quick, and then you might reflect on it later and be like, wow, I could have said that differently. I de-emphasized something or emphasized something that was for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so like you detect, I don't know, it's weird when, you, when you're constantly trying to step outside of yourself and then reevaluate how you acted in a situation, I still find myself just being biased, right? Doing all the things that 
we're all prone to. And I, that's exactly right. We're, we're prone to it. You're prone to it and, and I'm prone to it. The difference is trained people, and you are kind of self-trained here, trained people become aware mm-hmm. of that bias. Untrained people are completely blind to yeah. their own bias. And as we were, this kind of perhaps ties into the thing I was sharing earlier where it's human history is like one psyop after another. I mean, you could maybe think of these as little mini psyops in a way, right? I'm thinking when you start to, if we're using his side, her side, and the truth, when he and her start to date, typically the first date, first few dates, you know, both he and her are putting their best foot forward. They're trying to emphasize their qualities and attributes, their positive attributes, and de-emphasize their problems and their childhood traumas and all that. So is that it? Like we're always by necessity playing pretend a little bit and we're competing in a way too, right? Like you're want, trying to get the best mate or get the best job or the best deal, whatever it is. So we're always using that little bit of separation between the cold hard truth and the narrative to try and wiggle that space to our advantage in a way. And maybe that the the aggregate outcome of that are these psyops that we've been talking about. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think that your example isn't, isn't inaccurate. It, for sure, there's that wiggle room that we're using because we're seeking acceptance. Mm-hmm. His and hers is a fantastic example. When we date, we're looking for acceptance. Mm-hmm. We want to be accepted into each other's good graces. We want to be accepted into each other's lives. We want to be accepted into each other's beds, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of acceptance going mm-hmm. on. The other thing that comes to my mind when you talk about this is, is that we're taught at the agency that everybody has three lives, mm. right? Three lives. There's a public life, a private life, and a secret life. Hmm. The public life is the life that you're talking about right now. We emphasize our strengths. We obfuscate our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities. We try to make ourselves look stronger than we are, more courageous than we are, smarter than we are, so that we will be accepted because that's the persona we want to project to others. It's something that we do unconsciously. It's something that we're conditioned to do from childhood because that's just the way human beings connect and collaborate, right? We want to look attractive to others. So that's all of our public life. Mm-hmm. Everybody who's a friend, everybody who's an associate, everybody who's a who's a, a professional connection, they are all part of your public life. Mm-hmm. But then you have a private life too. Mm-hmm. Now your private life is for a much smaller group of people, mm-hmm. right? Intimate friends, intimate family. If in your public life people think that you're super smart, in your private life they know that your breath actually smells. They know that you're lactose intolerant, mm-hmm. right? They know that you have a weird patch of hair that grows on your lower back, right? Your intimate family, your yeah. kids, your wife, your, you know, whatever, your parents, they know that about you, but that's okay because they're part of your private life. Right. They can see through the public life and they know who you really are in private, but then we still have a third life, a secret life. Huh. And inside that secret life, we may never let anyone in. We may only let one or two people in. In that secret life is where our shame lives. It's where our guilt lives. It's where those secrets live. Insecurities. The things that you and I have done, that we know we've done, that we've never told anybody ever. And there's many more of those secrets than any of us have ever cared to remember. Even as we say this, I know they're coming up. Right? If you tell somebody one of those secrets... You're letting them into your secret life. Now, what CIA tells us is so powerful about this is that once you let someone into your secret life, you never let them out. So you can move someone from public life into private life. And if they disappoint you or let you down, you can move them back to public life, right? 
they go back and forth. Well, when you move someone from private life to secret life and you, and you share that level of vulnerability with them, even if you're mad at them, disappointed by them, don't trust them, you never really let them out of your secret life. Huh. So espionage is a game of getting people to let you into their secret life. Wow. Because then you gain all the leverage. You gain all the power. You know that they've been cheating on their wife since they were married three years. You know that they have two illegitimate kids. You know that they're secretly addicted to cocaine. You know that they love child pornography. You know, whatever it is. You know their secrets in their secret life. And they can't help but trust you because you are the only other person carrying the burden of those secrets. Wow. Right? And when someone else carries the burden of your secrets, you're intrinsically connected to them. And that's why you can't remove them. Because their loyalty to you is unending. Wow. And then once you have gained access to their secret life, you have the dirt on them. Presumably that's a very high leverage uh, possession or control mechanism, right? right? We call it coercion. Coercion, yeah. yeah. It's a tool called coercion. Now, coercion is the weakest of all tools to use, mm -hmm. which is why when you get the dirt, the most valuable thing to understand is that you never want to exploit the dirt. Mm. What you always want to do is sell them the hope behind the dirt, right? Like, I know you're, I know you've got a problem with opioids. I know you're addicted to opioids and I know you've been hiding it from the whole world. And one day together, we're going to get you past it. Hmm. But today you need to perform and you need your opioids hmm. today, right? So today I need you to go and have this meeting and get this secret and come back and bring it to me so that we can change the world. And we're not going to do that if we start cleaning you up today. So is that part of the espionage game then is to get into their secret world, know that weak point or point of high leverage, and then you just press that point to inspire yep. the behaviors that suit your interest or your boss's interest, I guess. That's not part of the game. That is That the is game. the game. That wow. is what makes a spy worth the $2.5 million of training that they get Wow! to learn how to do that systematically and predictably wow. with any culture, any gender, any age, any level of education. That's incredible. Well, that sounds like some cool schooling too. It's super cool schooling and it's a great, it's a great tool to have. And it serves in business and in the commercial world too, because people still have secret lives. Yeah. And when, when a client lets you into their secret life for any reason, their secret fears or shame or guilt about their business or their shame or their fears about failing their family, when they let you in, when you can help them through that, when you can make them stronger, when you can make them more courageous, they love you for it. And you're improving the productivity of them and their business that they're own, yeah. the business they're part of, and the country that you're in, and the legacy that you're leaving. I was just gonna say, because to gain access to someone's secret life also sounds like deep best friendship or something you'd want with a, your significant other. So it doesn't, it's weird that the game of espionage is to gain access to that secret life, but that's also the game of love, right? Between friends or between romantic partners that you want to have someone that you can divulge or invite into that secret life and you, be invited into their secret life. Right. You want it, but at the same time, if we're being honest with each other, we kind of don't, hmm. right? When I sit across from my wife and she's having a hard day, mm -hmm. I love my wife. I don't really want to be part of that, hmm. right? She's got all sorts of secret life drama going on. She's got stuff coming up from her childhood. She's got, you know, grief from her grandmother dying and she's got guilt about being a mom. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm really comfortable in the private life where I know you have guilt and grief and shame and fear. 
but I really don't want to be part of it right now, mm. right? And that's really what the game of love tends to be. And that's why we have a, a crazy 52% divorce rate or something like that, right? Oh. Because we don't really actually want anyone in our secret life. And we really don't want to put the investment into being part of somebody else's secret life. So then, are, Because the ROI isn't there. Right. Are you then also trained, if you're trained to infiltrate the secret lives of others, are you also trained to prevent infiltration of your own secret life? Absolutely. The tool that we use for that is something called no like trust. So there's a process in which you meet somebody, right? You, when you don't know somebody, they're a stranger to you. Mm -hmm. You're they're out. You never have to worry about that person gaining access to your secret life. So then you meet the person. Now that's the, that's the no, mm -hmm. the K and KLT, the no and no like trust. Now, you know, the person exists. But knowing the person exists doesn't necessarily mean you like them. Hmm. So over time, you realize you have things in common, you think the same way, you have you know similar ideals, hmm. you grew up in similar households, whatever else. Over time, you start to develop a liking for somebody. This is where things get dangerous because as you learn to like somebody, you absolutely naturally and unintentionally slip into trusting them. Hmm. Anybody who's ever been... Uh, let down. Anybody who's ever trusted somebody that didn't deserve their trust knows exactly what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. It's very easy to fall into a pattern of not knowing someone exists and then you know them and then you get along really great and you like them and before you know it, you act in ways where you trust them even though you have no reason mm -hmm. to trust them. Mm -hmm. That's no like trust. What we're trained as CIA operatives is that when no like trust happens quickly, that's a big red flag mm -hmm. that you're dealing with somebody who's trained. Mm -hmm. Because a trained person can get you through KLT in an immense amount of time. Hmm. The average time it takes for a CIA officer to get into the secret life of a target is nine months. Hmm. For especially hard targets, like the, the people who are who inherently distrust Americans or inherently distrust the United States, that process becomes more like 15 to 18 months. Hmm. But that's our system. We know how, how frequently, how often, what to talk about what to bring things like what to bring up, what to push on so that we can get into a target secret life within nine months. Wow. Right. Most engagements last more than 12 months. Most dating relationships exceed two years. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, that's three years from meeting to marriage yeah. on average and people still aren't in each other's secret life. Wow. Then are you, I guess you end up with this inner sanctum of secret life as a trained covert operative to just it never, you never connect that with anyone else in the world. Or when you do, it's a very intentional choice, hmm. right? Like I, my wife is a former CIA officer. Hmm. I trust my wife explicitly. I trust her implicitly. I trust her completely. Mm -hmm. I still have things I would never, never tell her. Wow. And she knows that. And she understands that because wh when I tell her that there are secret life topics that I don't want to share with her, mm -hmm. she knows she that those must be so fucking dark, <laughs> so shameful, so significant yeah. that it's going to negatively impact her to even hear about them. So she's okay not being part So of she doesn't pry. <laughs> she doesn't try to, what was it? No, no, no like trust. No like trust. She doesn't try to infiltrate. She knows that I trust her already. Yeah. Right. And I trust her enough to tell her, you don't fucking want to know about that. Right. right. That's something kind of beautiful that you guys have this vernacular to understand human psychology, even competitive human psychology in a way that you can discuss these things that might otherwise destroy a marriage, right? Like you might sense someone holding on to that secret life and maybe the other partner is like, oh, tell me, I want to know, I want to know, I want to know. 
and that could either drive the other partner nuts or they end up letting them in and it you know it was so dark it could blow up but you guys actually have a framework for talking about these things and dealing with them in a i guess healthy way sounds like you're happily married yeah well and this is the framework we teach our clients yeah so our clients can have the same conversations with us right so i can talk to a client and i can say i feel like we're butting up against a secret life issue here is that mm -hmm. true and they can say yeah it's a secret life issue and mm -hmm. and i can give them the option like hey do you want to let me into that or do you not want to let me into mm -hmm. that right and and similarly we can teach them personality profiling and we can teach them how they can use this vernacular with their spouse with their children with their yeah. business partner right how many businesses have failed because partners can't it's connect the communication yeah so i mean it's it's incredible the wealth of commercial and business experience and uh and expertise that ci sits on every day yeah and they don't realize it because they can't monetize it yeah right um and i think that's been the big blessing that i've had i don't claim to be the best i'm not the best ex-ci officer i wasn't the best ci officer i'm not the best businessman i'm just the first person who's been able to connect and teach this language mm. so people can use these skills practically and immediately in the everyday world that's so cool Okay, so we were talking about the secret life and you had mentioned that once an operative gains access to one's secret life, they can then leverage that access to coerce them into certain behaviors. And you said at that point that coercion was one of, and I think you said like the lightest of these weapons. I think you may have said weapons, I'm not sure. What are the other items or weapons or categories besides coercion? Yeah. So what we're talking about here are core motivations. Okay. Uh, and core motivations are levers, levers that you can use to control someone's behavior. And there's four of them. And they, they break into a acronym that we at the agency call RICE, R-I-C-E. Mm -hmm. uh, the R stands for reward. Reward is the first core motivator. Mm -hmm. The second is I, ideology. Mm -hmm. And we spent a lot of time talking about ideology today, right? C is coercion. Mm -hmm. E is ego. Okay. So every human being. Sorry, what was the R? The R. The the R was reward. Reward. Okay. Yeah. So the every human being, and we define human beings at the agency as anybody with a a uh, neurotypical brain. Okay. Right. So somebody who's on the autistic spectrum is still a human being, but we may not be calling them average or typical, mm -hmm. right? We'd be talking about them as on the spectrum versus a typical human being, right? But a typical human being basically has these four core motivators and everybody has a natural tendency towards one of the four more than any other, but all four will work for all people. Hmm. When you look at the four in terms of significance and power to actually drive a behavior or control a behavior, they're not equal. The strongest of the four is ideology. Mm. If you can ideologically connect with somebody, if you can get into their secret life and create or twist their ideology, you essentially have the strongest control over that person you can have. And we've seen this. We've seen this in highly religious communities. You've seen this in extremist terroristic, uh, terrorist groups. You've seen this in you know abusive relationships, right? People can cling to an ideology so strong that they abandon rational thought. They attach their entire identity to the ideology. Correct. So is this where you get divisiveness between like, you know, left and right wing or vaxxer, anti-vaxxer? It's like people, they tie their identity to the ideology. Exactly. And then that person becomes very easy to control. 
Yes. If right? you control the ideology. If you control the ideology yeah. or if you direct the ideology, right? Yeah. So you've got it, right? And that's one of the four core motivators. That's the strongest. The second strongest is ego. Hmm. And most people would say that that's fairly obvious, right? Somebody, when we talk about ego, we're not talking about egotistical, two different things, right? Egotistical means somebody who thinks it's all about them. Ego has to do with how you want to be perceived by others. Mm -hmm. So a very sacrificial person who is not at all egotistical still has an ego. Mm -hmm. They still, they actively make the sacrifices that they make publicly because they want to be seen as a sacrificial person. They want to be seen as a giver. They want to be seen as a, as a leader. They want to be seen as selfless, right? They have an ego. Right, right, right. It's just not what we type, typically call egotistical. So is that then the actions they're taking to create their public life? Correct. Is there ego? Okay. Correct. They're shaping their public life mm -hmm. because of the ego they want to protect or, or mm -hmm. uh, project, mm -hmm. right? So R-I-C-E, reward ideology, coercion, and ego. Ideology is the strongest of the four. Ego is the second strongest. The weakest is coercion. Hmm. Because if you recall, we're in someone's secret life. We have used the no like trust process to build trust with this person to gain access to their secret life. Mm -hmm. Well, now once we use a coercive technique, once you hold a gun to someone's head, once you give them an ultimatum, once you say, you know, that, that once you demonstrate a threat mm -hmm. that leverages or leans into their shame or their mm -hmm. guilt or, you know, their abuse, once you do that, you inherently break part of the trust that they have in you. You introduce the question, the shadow of doubt. Mm. Should I trust this person? Should I listen to this person? And even though you're in their secret life, it's very unlikely they're ever going to let you out, right? But that doesn't mean that they're going to give you full cooperation inside their secret life. Mm. And that's why coercion is so dangerous because you only get one chance. If you coerce somebody one time and you're caught, you never get back to where you started right, ever right. again. If you've ever been cheated on by a girlfriend or lied to by a family member, you know. Right. You, you never get back to where you are. Yeah, for sure. So coercion is it's very high risk for very low return. Right. Now, does that mean that we don't coerce people sometimes? No, not at all. Mm -hmm. Because coercion still works. Yes. You just have to be prepared that if you're going to coerce, like it's never going to be as the the bond, the connection, the control yeah. will never be as strong as it was the first time. Is it more than a measure of last resort? That's exactly you prefer right. ideology or ego before coercion. Yep. And then of course the missing piece is reward. Mm -hmm. And reward is difficult because reward changes, mm -hmm. right? I would have done a lot of things for $1,000 when I was 18. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do much for $1,000 mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. right? And you, the rewards change. Mm -hmm. a, a week of vacation paid in Tahiti sounded nice then. Mm -hmm. eh, I don't really want a week off and I don't really want to get on a plane to Tahiti. And yeah. I've got two kids and a wife and you know, a household I have to worry about too. So rewards are constantly shifting. So the power that comes along with being able to control those rewards is also constantly shifting. Yes. There was a day where you and I probably would have put our name down on a, on a piece of paper to win a free car or to win a free, you know, holiday trip. Free anything. Oh yeah. Right. We would have put our name and our email address and our phone number. We would have said when we're 18. Yep. But now nobody gets my phone number and my name for free. Yeah. Right. It just doesn't, that's not how it works. What is that framework called? You said it's rice. What are those core motivators? Yep. Your core motivational yeah. levers. And so money obviously is a major reward lever. Correct. And so it makes sense that if you can monopolize and control a money supply, you can centrally manage that R. Yep. 
in a lot of people. Yep, exactly. And money is also part of an ideology. Yeah. And this is one of the things that most people don't understand. Most people who, the people who accuse uh, others of being greedy mm -hmm. completely miss the point. Most people who may appear greedy are actually not greedy. Yeah. They don't want money just because they want money. There's an ideology that they're carrying that is inherently tied to what the money can bring. Yes. The money brings security. The yeah. money brings options. Yeah. The money brings respect. The money brings power. Yeah. It's not the money itself. It's an ideology that's connected through the money. That's a great point. Yeah. It's, uh, Mises always says no one wants a, to increase the quantity of money they have. Actually, it's the purchasing power that they want. So it's the, the options yep. that the money affords you. And it is interesting because money has an ideological side to it, which you would think was just subjective at that point. Mm -hmm. Like we could make glasses money or bananas money or anything, but there are objective constraints to what functions as good money, which I guess is sort of super ideological in a way. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, but you know, even on our US dollar bills in God, we trust, right? There's ideology right there, right on, there. on the dollar bill. Um, but there are also things beyond just the ideology that determine what makes good money and bad money. So it's it kind of crosses both both worlds, it seems like. Right, and that's what makes money such an interesting and complex thing. Yeah. Whenever anybody tries to boil it down to something simple, <laughs> there's, there's educational value in thinking about yeah. money as something simple, but you're missing the, the, the nuance. You're missing the more sophisticated understanding that could be had yes. if you think of it in those terms. Yes. As someone that's been asking a lot of people the question for three years <laughs> solid, I have more questions than answers to this day. And it's, yeah, I, I just feel very fortunate to have stumbled across this question because it seems like, um, what does it do? It highlights the complexity of the world and perhaps the insufficiency of language. Like we're using language by necessity to describe the world, to interact, to think all these things but the map is never the territory, right? The territory is always way more complicated yeah. than our map. I like that. The map yeah. and the territory. I yeah. like that a lot. Um, okay. I want to be respectful of your time. It's so cool. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> the CIA, like you're becoming who you are today. Like how has it changed you? So if you go back to 18 year old you, to who you are today, I think you said you're 37. 40, 43. 43. Okay. 43. How has that progression changed you? And I, I sort of asked about this earlier, I think, where you, you learn these skills and tactics and they become embedded in your character. But how have you, Mr. Bustamante, changed from 18 to going through this progression to your 43-year-old self today when you look back on it all? CIA liberated me. Hmm. I mean, I and I say that absolutely honestly. June 2008... I was, I, I feel like I was set free, right? Everything that I believed about the world up until I was 27 years old, the day that I went through the farm, the first day, the first briefing about American supremacy, mm -hmm. right? The first day of the farm, it just absolutely changed me. The because farm is training ground? The farm is CIA's field tradecraft. Okay, got it. And, uh, and it's a, it's a long course. It's classified how long it is. Wikipedia talks about it, but I can't confirm or deny if it's yeah, accurate. Okay. But, uh, but what happens is, you know, CIA recruits a very specific type of person. And I realized that in hindsight, but not at the time. And then with that very specific type of person, 
they essentially teach you that the things that you have always been suspicious of mm-hmm. are real, mm. right? We've all, I've always been suspicious that people are not being honest, even when they say they're being honest. Mm-hmm. I've always been- Especially when they say they're being honest. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been suspicious and skeptical of authority. Yeah. I've always uh, questioned whether or not authority has the right to be authority, right? And there's, and there's lists and lists of other things beyond that, right? I, I stay up sometimes late at night wondering whether or not I'm even telling myself the truth of what I believe or whether I'm lying to myself or whether I'm creating some sort of context for myself mm. to rationalize my thoughts. Mm. Like this is the kind of stuff that goes through my head and it did when I was younger. Re- how I handled girls and dating relationships and how I handled guys and friend relationships and when I was a supervisor in the military. And it wasn't until I got to CIA that they trained me and they kind of enlightened me like this is, this is the reality of how the world works. Mm-hmm. Here's how the human brain actually works. Here's how your brain works. One of the things that that's really unique about CIA officers is we're oftentimes recruited because we have some kind of significant childhood trauma Mm. that leads to us being outside of the typical neurotypical bell curve. Mm. So we're high, higher anxiety than the average person, Mm. higher self-discipline than the average person, uh, more rejection issues than the average person, right? Mm. So we fear rejection. We want loyalty. We trade loyalty. Mm. So it's, we're, we're fucked up in our own way, (laughs) but you learn about it and it's it's incredibly validating hmm. because now you see that everything you've been conditioned to believe is fake. It's not real. You've been conditioned to be a cog in a larger machine that works a very predictable way so that the state can function. And now you're being pulled out of that and you're being reshaped because your role to support the state is different than the cog, mm. right? You're still a cog. Yes. You're just not that cog. And that was a very liberating experience for me. So my first big transformation happened in 2008. So when I when I built my business, a big part of what I endeavor to do every day with, with Everyday Spy is give people a taste of that experience that I had, that liberation, that enlightenment, that, that life-changing realization that I'm not crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not crazy. Mm. I'm not crazy. I'm not stupid. I'm not ignorant. I'm not selfish. I'm not manipulative. I'm actually just human. The type of person that understands espionage inherently. Yeah. Right? Oh, so that's what, so you had intuitions about espionage, and this gave you a rigorous framework in which to validate those intuitions, something yeah. like that. And thank you for asking. Thank you for being the first one to ask that question. And thank you for being the one to kind of, you know, summarize it that way. But yeah, you're right. I had an intuition about espionage, but no training to back it. And then I got the knowledge and the systems and the framework to recognize that my intuitions that always made me feel like I was a horrible person were in fact just natural. They were gifts. even Natural ordained gifts for espionage. Yeah. Then the second big aha moment came when I left CIA. Because the whole time I was at CIA from 2008 to 2014, as when I was a trained officer and from 2007 to 2014, when I was an officer, I never quite realized that the skills they were teaching me were also the governing tools that they were using to control me. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> right? I was inside of a system yeah. where the people who trained me what I knew knew more. And yeah. they were using that superior knowledge to be able to make sure that I executed my ops and that I made sure that I put myself at personal risk and then I made sure I told the truth, right? So I was stuck inside that same. KLT, RICE, you know, secret life, public life, private life framework. But I was just subservient to 
a larger organization. So it wasn't until I left and got some space from it and realized how the system was failing me in my everyday life that I started asking myself the question, had the chance to reflect and say, holy smokes, like, I feel like I'm failing in my current life. I'm not failing. I'm just not using the tools I was given. Yeah. Because before I was instructed what tools to use and when. Now I need to do that for myself. Hmm. And right. And that's the second part of Everyday Spy. It's teaching people the skills so they have the life change, they have the aha moment, but then also teaching them how to control what skills they use when so they continue to manifest that unfair advantage. That is so freaking cool. <laughs> it's um it just it's kind of ironic, I guess, because it sounded like you're describing an unplugged moment from the matrix in a way where you're like, oh, I was plugged into this machine. I was supposed to be a cog, but I had intuitions that told me this, there was more to life than this. And then you come into the CIA and they're saying, yes, there is, or actually you've taken the red pill or whatever it is. And they show you, right? Your, your intuitions are legitimate. And here's kind of the framework around them. Here's how people actually work, how the world actually works. And then you get a second unplugged moment though, which is taking all that knowledge and reassimilating back into the world post CIA. Right. And the, the ironic part in my mind is you hear Bitcoiners having a similar unplugged moment. Hmm. It's like you get into Bitcoin, you start going down the rabbit hole, you know, what is money? What is this? What is that? Next thing you know, like the whole world's like, oh my God, we're living in, you know, as we said earlier, it's like a slave complex. There's a lot of bullshit, you know, government's not your friend, all these things. And you're kind of left to pick up the pieces. Hmm. Um, so it's just interesting that I, I would never expected to hear that going into the CIA was like <laughs> going into the Bitcoin rabbit hole a little bit, but it sounds like both of them shatter your old worldview and leave you to pick up the pieces. Or recraft, recraft something completely different, right? Yeah. And what's the, the hard part about it, and I'm guessing it's the same way with Bitcoin folks, is you become very isolated. Mm. All of a sudden, everybody else is still operating according to the old matrix. Yeah. And you're outside of that. And the only option you have is to find the other people who are outside of that. Bingo. Bitcoiners often complain that they feel kind of isolated in their local community because there's not a lot of us in each community. But then we all come together at something like a Bitcoin conference in Miami and it's a big love fest. Everyone's having a great time. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're correct. That's a, that's a common complaint. So Yeah, and that's just part of that part of that, uh, the wolf pack yeah. developing for ourselves. So now that you've been through all this and you've discovered your gifts mm. and you're endeavoring to share them with the world, where, where are you headed from here? Like what is the vision for your life and how do you see everyday spy into the future? So my original, uh, my original ambition when I first launched, it's funny, I, when I launched my podcast in 2018, I think the third or fourth episode of my podcast I made this claim that I wanted to be a household name by the time I was 45. Huh. Um, and I was 39 at the time. So I made that claim not because I wanted to be a household name, but because I was trying to make a point about how CIA teaches us to set ridiculously impossible goals. It doesn't, it's not worth it to just set a, a, a realistic goal. It's not worth it to set a goal that's a stretch, right? Set a ridiculous, completely improbable, embarrassing to say out loud kind of goal. Hmm and then see how close to that goal you get. Hmm. So there I was in 2019 recording a podcast episode where I told the world, which was 11 listeners at the time, right, that I set this goal to be a household name by the time I was 45, and then I was going to disappear. I was going to take all of my toys and fucking go home. 
right? And turn my company over to an executive, a, a C-suite and let them run it. And I'll just take a passive paycheck and just disappear with my family and be with them, be with my kids when they're in their teenage years, be with my wife while we're still young enough to enjoy our youth. Um, since then, I am now 43. Uh, I have been referenced in popular media as a household name. I don't think I am a household mm -hmm. name. I think I'm a YouTube-ish name, mm -hmm. and that's about at, at best, right? Um, but we now have TV projects, film projects, book projects that are making it so I can't disappear at 45. Mm -hmm. So I've had to adjust my ambitions. So now I'm, I'm targeting 47, 48 mm -hmm. before I take my toys and go home and fall off the map. So I've got five more years to really have a good time building this business out. I got to find my new CEO. I got to find my new C-suite. I've got to find other ex-CIA and NSA and DIA folks who are going to come in and teach the next generation. Hmm. But I didn't build this business to be famous. Hmm. I built the business to give skills to real people that they can use to get a real advantage. And I'm not needed for that. That's why it's not called Andrew Bustamante Incorporated, mm -hmm. right? It's called Everyday Spy. There will always be people leaving CIA who want to give back to the American public and teach the skills that they used for success in the field. So that's that's the mission, that's the goal. And you know, if I'm lucky, I'll still talk to you when I'm 49 years old, but nobody else will be able to find that. <laughs> if I'm so lucky, I still get to talk to you when you're 49. I think that's a really cool mission. You're taking these badass skills that we've learned through really, like we said, all of human history, right? That have culminated in the intelligence inside of institutions like the CIA, and then you're giving that back to people to use in their everyday life. That seems ennobling and enabling, not enabling, you're improving people's competence, mm -hmm. right? Because if they have this knowledge, they have these frameworks, There's a, there must be many other people out there with intuition similar to you that also think they're crazy or bad, and now you can just give them this gift of saying, no, this is actually how human minds work and how society works, and you can use these to your advantage in a professional sense, a personal sense, et cetera. Um, it's cool. It's really cool stuff you're doing. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. And thanks for letting me talk about it. And thanks for asking such awesome questions, man. This was a joy. Yeah, this was great. So we've got you for at least five more years, right? You got me. So we'll get you back here at least once a year <laughs> for the next five years. I won't say no to you, man. Dude, thank you so much for doing this. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah. Uh, the fastest way to find me is to look up everydayspy.com. That's my homepage. Uh, if you're a podcast fan, look up my podcast. It's called the Everyday Espionage Podcast. Or if you just Google my name, Andrew Bustamante, you'll find me uh, on all platforms and you'll you'll find your way to uh, whether you want to listen to me, watch me, or hear me. Beautiful. Dude, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you.